Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Thursday morning, May 19th, 843-661-0937 is our number. Morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. So you were asking me a question a second ago about interest rates. You heard that Bloomberg, uh, is it Michael Bloomberg or the website Bloomberg? I I'm, I'm think it's the website it's okay. the, or the, the news organization. Here's the deal with Bloomberg. Bloomberg has gotten to the point now you really can't read anything. It's premium content. Uh, there was a day that Bloomberg was readily available. Now they've got this... Um, if you see a story on Bloomberg and you find it somewhat interesting uh, and it's not in the mainstream, in other words, some of these reporters or some of these news outlets have uh, exclusivity on certain stories. Um, I saw a story yesterday in, uh, trying to think what it is, um, The Federalist. And it's kind of an interesting title. So I Google, I mean, excuse me, I click onto the story that says, ah, this story available for only Federalist freedom fighters. Mm. Did you not know that you could subscribe and receive all of this glorious content for the nominal fee of four ninety nine per month? That's where we're headed. And I will have to ask permission here in the next uh, probably six months before the end of the year to um, expand some of the subscriptions you guys have taken. I mean, as part of the prep of this show, I, I've got a subscription to Wall Street Journal, the National Review, the New York Times. Um, some of the stations takes care of, some I take care of, um, some predate my soliciting support from community <laughs> broadcasters, but it's gotten real complicated lately, especially the last year or so. It seems that the majority of these sites that I frequent about every day, um, they have some stories available. There was a day that you could get five stories a month for free and three stories a week or two stories a week or whatever. Um, the enticement angle was what it was, right, right. but now it's one, um, one article remaining or yeah. whatever. It would count it down. But now it's almost to the point that um, a lot of sites are. Yeah. And I get it. I mean, you know, they've got oh, to make yeah. a buck some way, sure. somehow. So you pay it for the content and some of it's called exclusive content. In other words, Bloomberg has a, um, a staff of writers and reporters and they go out and, and dig deep into one issue or another. And those are the stories I find most interesting. Um, and it says, when you click on the story, oh, this sounds interesting or this looks interesting. You click on and it shows you the story for about one second. And then a screenshot comes on that says, this is premium content available only to those who pay, you know, four ninety nine a month or five ninety nine a month. You could spend 50 bucks a month and be entitled to a lot of, um, or a lot of the content would be available to someone um, who wants to be more informed uh, than most. I'm not saying it makes you any smarter. I'm certainly not suggesting that, but it does allow you to be more informed well, uh, than this, most. Would this be a good time to point out that uh, listening to free radio, you get our content for free? Just you turn do. on your closest radio or turn on the app or listen online on the well, website? I mean, most would probably argue it should be free. Well, what's, what, there's <laughs> not great value in this. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you know, this guy reads the premium content. <laughs> he tries to uh, articulate what he thinks he read or, dealt or got out of um, some of the premium content. But it's gotten more complicated. Uh, as we've moved on, moved on, and um, and some of these sites, I mean, they do good work. I mean, they really do. National Review. I've told you a hundred times. The National Review, um, no friend to Trump, not as antagonistic as they were a um, couple of three years ago, but no big friend to the Trump movement. Um, I think they're a little bit conflicted in this America First movement. They get it. They understand it. They don't like it. I mean, they wish we had George Will, William Buckley, you know, Christopher Hitchings, and some other intellectual liberal discussing at harvard you know the mood and sentiment of the nation's politics or political scene but that's just not where we are um and we're heading to a very 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 treacherous place 
Trust me. And that's what um, started this because I heard, I, guess, I think it was a credited to Bloomberg, they talk about gas prices uh, later this summer being over $6 on average and a diesel maybe toward $9. There are no good answers. I mean, it is time. I mean, the chickens are coming home to roost. I mean, I just started thinking about what happens. I know the economy, you know, seems to be struggling or puttering or whatever you'd call it right now. But what happens when gas is six dollars? Let's think of how that affects everybody, every business. Think of this for a second. So, when when the world blew up in two thousand seven and eight, the economy was in shambles. The stock market was at about six thousand points, somewhere thereabout. Um, I don't know the S&P. I don't know the Dow, you know, but but this, excuse me, the Dow was at about 6,000. I don't know the S&P or, or some of the sectors within um, the NASDAQ has these benchmarks. They have these um th- these certain sectors they play close attention to. Man, if the S&P ever gets to 1,500, you know, if the S&P ever gets to 1,800, uh, but the Dow was at about 6,000. So the Dow got as high as 35,000-ish, somewhere thereabout. So let's let's round off here. So the Dow went up by a multiple of six, roughly. Better than five, a little less than six. So so the Dow went from um, 6,000 to nearly 36,000. Once again, a multiple of five or six. Do you think the economy is five times as big today as it was? I mean, we printed this money. The Fed was incredibly activist. And when you, when you chart, when you correlate the Fed's activism and the S&P 500, I showed you this. I mean, we're not a visual medium, so I can't show our, our listeners. Go to my Twitter account. Yeah, you posted it yeah, on I Twitter Yeah, I posted it on Twitter yesterday. It has been the greatest, I don't want to say transfer of wealth, but in reality, because to transfer, you take it from somebody and give it to somebody else. This has been um, the greatest distortion, manipulation of an economy that I think human history has ever seen. Since 2007, when the world was blowing up and the Fed chose, and Bernanke said we learned lessons in the Great Depression, the Fed didn't do enough. So, so he, you know, really got animated and creative and uh, very involved. And, you know, I, I don't know enough to explain exactly what, I mean, I know what quantitative easing in, and I know what bond buying is. I know how you inject liquidity into the economy. I understand some of that, but there, there's so many intricacies here that I don't understand. But, but I've said it before and I'll say it again. Um, macroeconomic stimulus is going to create inflation. Inflation is going to devalue the dollar. It's going to make you and I and everybody listening to my voice poorer. Now, now some people can afford to be poor. It doesn't matter to Jeff Bezos. I mean, I know Amazon stock's taking a licking, but, but you know, in his world, his yacht's probably still secure. He's not worth, you know, $100 billion. He's only worth $60 billion. And, and that's, that's the, it's not a transfer of wealth because we didn't take it from, we created it out of thin air through monetary policy and, and Fed principle. We created it out of thin air an enormous amount of liquidity, and we continued for about 15 years. So when you look at the stock market going up by a multiple of six, I'll ask you this. Do you feel like the economy six times as good as it was in 2008? I mean, I feel it's kind of trudged along. We've had what? We've had a quarter or two after the pandemic of in excess of 3% GDP growth. And that's because everything shut down. The next quarter, everything opened up. So we had this big jump, I think 6.1% was a um, you know, quarter by quarter or from one quarter to the next, the increase of, of GDP. Now, politicians run around and say that the, the biggest you know, increase in GDP growth at a quarter in 40 years or 50 years, well, you shut everything down. I mean, he told businesses they couldn't operate in their function. Of course, there's going to be a huge uptick in GDP from one quarter to the next. There's nothing about this that's real. 
Once again, I'm from the Hannah Pamplegill Institute of Higher Learning. <laughs> and I've got sense enough to understand there's nothing about this real. It's all phony. It's all propped up. It, it's all la-la land. That there are no fundamentals out there that suggest for a second that this is sustainable. This is real. Here's the deal. The people that have benefited the most are the ones creating the machine. They're not going to chastise their own work of art. I mean, they're, they're not going to say, wow, we did a lousy job here. No, they're going to allow the charade to go on for as long as the charade can go on. So when someone goes on CNBC this morning and says, well, you know, there's some fundamentals I like and some fundamentals I don't like, he's in on the fix. I mean, you know, CNBC is, I think Reggie Armstrong has said this, pornography for finance. I mean, it is. These people are paid. J.P. Morgan has an executive that goes on CNBC. J.P. Morgan has benefited enormously. Goldman Sachs, BlackRock, all of these huge financial companies. Um, but, but I can't say it's a transfer of wealth because they didn't take it from Dave Baker and Ken Ard and kind of transition it to, to the, the coffers of Wall Street. They created the money out of thin air. Because I did at one time call it the greatest transfer of wealth in the history of humankind. It's not that. It's the greatest creation of money out of thin air, fiat currency out of thin air that ends up in the hands. I'll give you an example. Um, I told you it, it would amaze me to know how much money governments have today. I did a little digging uh, yesterday and today, and it came up with a lot. I'm not through uh, county government, city government, state government. I'm not through with you yet, school districts. But I did find out that 93% of $122 billion that public education, K-12, through received in the first uh, American Rescue Plan, the first CARES Act, uh, $1.9 trillion. Uh, yeah, it was the American, Re well, one, one, the CARES Act and then the American Rescue Plan. I think one came before the other. I think the CARES Act was first, and then the American Rescue Plan came later. It was to deal with COVID, right? I mean, what, what you know, plexiglass and all these other sorts of things. I don't know what, I don't know how school district spends more money when kids don't go to school. But the government, in its infinite wisdom, says there's $122 billion. Now, it's not $122 billion. It's $122,000 million. See, you and I can't grasp a billion. It's $122,000 million that school districts were given. That, that no, nobody had the money. We created the money out of thin air. We gave the school districts all over the country $122,000 million. They've not spent 93% of it. The Department of Education... Uh, the American Tax Policy, uh, the, the American Tax Policy Center did an evaluation of the Department of Education's um, uh, their report, and the report shows that K through 12 school districts all over this country are sitting on 93 percent of 122,000 million dollars. Send the money back. It's not your money. The American taxpayers on the hook for that money. And 93% of the money's not been spent. Apparently, you didn't need it. The, do the decent thing and send the damn money back and let's apply it to the debt. But, but how many of us believe that will happen? I'm not chastising school districts. It's the, it's the insanity of government. It will never happen. And, and, but but I mean, that's just one example. I mean, it's not even 620 this morning. And there's an example of just carelessness, recklessness, lack of accountability. And, and we're getting there quicker, guys. I'm telling you, we're heading to a place where there aren't going to be any good options. That There's a fork in the road. One fork leads. I mean, I'm talking about the current situation today. I don't care what Larry Summers says. I don't care what Jerome Powell, Janet Yellen. Stop listening to those people. They don't know what they're talking about. 
They're highly educated. They're unbelievably pedigreed. They've been to Davos far more times than I've been to Davos. They'll be invited back to Davos because they play ball. They perpetuate this sham. But, but the reality is there are no good answers right now. We, we pumped so much liquidity into the economy that we didn't have. And that has led to hyperinflation. And the only alternative is to raise rates to try to slow down the velocity of money. So you've got a fork in the road and one fork leads to rampant inflation and continued low interest rates and pretty decent economic activity. Not great, but pretty decent. The other leads to a raising of rates and a recession that I argue could ultimately become a depression or an elongated, extended recession, 36, 48 months worth of recession, recessionary periods. I mean, that, that's where we're headed. And there are no plan Bs. At some point in time, you run out of excuses. At some point in time, you don't have any more bullets in your gun. You don't have any more magic potions. And, and we've entrusted the Fed to basically delay the inevitable. Elon Musk said something a couple of days ago. Recessions aren't bad. But we've allowed ourselves to be convinced that, you know, recessions aren't all of a sudden the American economist and the American government knows better than history knows. And, and recessions were corrections. I mean, they were necessary when businesses were irresponsible with the private sector. You know, I'm famous for saying well, the public sector did all this. Well, I mean, business gets irresponsible. A lot of businesses get very irresponsible and not tethered to reality. So when the business community makes enormous mistakes, or the public sector makes enormous mistakes, recessions help correct some of those mistakes. And, and what we've done is said, hey, you know, the, the political class in charge of a country in a deep recession probably won't get elected. So crank up the printing presses, boys, and let's print more money and delay the realities of a correction that helps us get back to some solid footing of economic activity. Guys, I'm not an economist. I'm not an academic. I'm not an intellectual. But I understand the economy in the most real way, world, real world way imaginable, and we are in a bad, bad place as we speak. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Someone on the phone? Let's go there. David in the PD. Hello, David. Hey, man. Ken, I tell you what, brother, you missed your calling, man. You would have been an awesome economic professor, and man, you brought up something yesterday. I think you called it four D chess. And I'm thinking about uh, Donald Trump. Where did Donald Trump go to college to learn economics? I think he went to Columbia and then Wharton. No, yeah, yeah. Wharton School of Business. Yeah, University of Pennsylvania. Wharton School of Business. Mm -hmm. Pennsylvania. Okay, so when you take that education that he got and you apply what I call a four-ring circus, when you live life, you deal with a four-ring circus. And I, I, I'm going to give him credit. There is no such thing as the word liberal anymore. You're a Springsteen fan. You're a Dylan fan. Uh, I probably am a liberal. We need to call that the radical left. And he's done a good job on that. And I, I want to say this, man. When I talk about four-ring circus, he's looking at Pennsylvania. If you look at the Biden dream, that would be if they held on to the Congress as far as House of Representatives, the Senate, and that governor's seat. That's the Biden dream. The, the media's dream is that eh, we might lose the, the House of Representatives, but we'll keep the Senate seat, keep the governor seat. The Fox News uh, alternative would be, yeah, we win the House in Pennsylvania. We win the Senate in Pennsylvania. Might lose the governor. Here's where Trump, and I give him credit on this. Let's say you win all three of them. When you, you win the House, the seat, and the governor, 
And that's where he's setting himself up for 2024. I can assure you, if he wins all three, he will run for president. Have a good day. Thank you, David. Appreciate that. Let's take our first break of the morning. We've got a call, 843 six six one oh nine three seven. Don't want to get too far behind this morning <laughs> as I rant about um the experts and their take on the economy. Jim Kramer ranted a little bit yesterday. I normally don't pay him much attention these days, but I remember what he said in oh seven and early oh eight, I guess, that foreshadowed what was coming and yesterday uh, when the big sell off was uh, I guess in progress, he says this has to be one of the worst days I can recall in years and I have been around the block. But Kramer is a paid Operative. He's one of those guys. Sure, I mean about. he's the yeah. guy. NBC. That's Kramer. why I don't normally pay him much attention. But I do. That that time in 2007 stands out to me. And I'm not questioning their understanding. Please, please let me let me go back one second, Mike. I'm not questioning that. I think Jim Cramer absolutely understands the economy. I think he understands the markets far better than I do. But he's a paid operative. He's a hack. He's doing a job that he's paid to do. And, and that is uh, tell a story that may or may not be true. Take a break. Mm-hmm. Back in just a minute. 843-661-0937. Breaking news. Do you have a bit of a scoop? We'll have 7th Congressional District polling that will be made public first of next week. Let me say that again. Um, we will have a poll on the 7th Congressional District Republican primary that will be made public sometime uh, the first early next week. I'm trying to get... Um, uh, an individual, an individual involved in the polling to break the news on our show. He likes to do it on Twitter. I mean, Twitter, you know what I mean? You got this, this mass delivery on Twitter, but um, I'm trying to convince this person oh. who is going to be responsible for this poll that will be made public. I mean, I know there's polling out there, but it's proprietary, it's in confidence, and we're not privileged, to, nor should we be. I mean, in all honesty, we shouldn't be allowed to see some of the polling that the candidates are paying for. And so, so well, you go to call it internal polling. You know, we've got internals that show. We've got internals that show. Um, a lot of, if they say we've got internals that show X, Y, or Z. If you hear a campaign not talking about internals, they've got bad internals. So they don't even reference the internals. <laughs> but there's going to be a poll done probably over the weekend and it'll be made public sometime first of next week. Um, so that'll be very interesting. Yeah, what do you think we have to do in order to get the exclusive on that or the first release? Um, just threaten. Okay. Just threaten we'll with that. things. You know, threaten to make public some of his. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> do what you do in politics. You know, kind of um, leverage yourself into a better situation. But it'll be very interesting. We'll be, what, 21 days out from Tuesday. And if we could get polling by, say, Tuesday or Wednesday. And, uh, and make it public, that will give us a good, you know, c- kind of where are we and where are we headed. 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. Dale in Florence. Good morning, Dale. Good morning, guys. So this whole inflation thing, I mean, we, we, we really saw it coming as soon as they shut down all the fracking and all the public land leases and all that kind of stuff that they're doing with the oil. Can, can how much... And I know there's other things that are going into this recession, but maybe percentage-wise, how much would you say the administration's handling of the whole energy independence thing uh, would be pushing this inflation so hard? I mean, I think it's a third because we all buy fuel. I mean, the majority of us. I mean, I think inflation has been here for 15 years. I think we've misrepresented, we've understated what inflation has done to your dollar, my dollar, everybody else's dollar, our purchasing power, I would argue, has not kept up with our income. But, but the, the the fuel disaster 
is about a third of this, maybe as much as a half, Dale, because we buy gas every single day and we have kind of the psyche. You know, when we ride by a convenience store and we see 405 one day and 409 the next day and 417 the following day, we kind of begin to have this hunkering down mentality. I'm not going out to eat today because, you know, what what used to cost me 50 bucks now cost me 120 bucks. And I think it's having a tremendous psychological effect on how we're um, kind of spending our money. Well, and then there's the fact that all of our goods and services rely on that same fuel price to maintain their low prices, and we're paying, I don't know how much. Hannity says an extra 5000 a year. I don't know what the number is. I just know I don't have as much money left as I used to, and what little I do have isn't going nearly as far. And I can't see anyone to blame except for the government, because they're the ones that saying everything's going so well and they've done such a good job. You guys have a good day. Thank you, Dale. Appreciate that. Uh eight four three six six one oh nine three seven. You know, when gas is two twenty nine or two thirty nine, you know, that th- it's almost like you you win. That there's some psychological element involved in um Rev, you pay two thirty nine for gas, I paid two twenty nine. I saved about eighty cent or a dollar or a dollar and ten cent. But that's real money, but that's half a snicker bar in a convenience store today. Um <laughs> But if gas goes from, you know, two bucks to four bucks or from one ninety nine to two forty nine, that has a major, a major impact on our economy. Uh, you saw Walmart stock. Walmart sold off eleven and a half percent. Walmart had its worst quarter since nineteen eighty seven. I read last night on CNBC some of the explanations given by Wall Street and um, the spokespeople for Walmart, and it basically implied, now they dress up the language a little bit, but they said they couldn't keep up with inflation. You know, the logistics required to get product, but they've got a big, I mean, Walmart's a huge company. It's an international conglomerate. They've got a very sophisticated logistics system. Um, I think they said they spent, it was $100 million more on diesel than they thought they would. Um, they spent about another hundred, another hundred million dollars on on logistical expenses. I mean, a hundred millions in, in mine and your world is the game changer. In their world, a uh, hundred million here, a hundred million there. You know, a misestimating of a hundred million or fifty or sixty or seventy million gets into their bottom line. And Walmart basically said this is not the only reason, but but they said they did not that they could not keep up with inflation. And by that I mean the price reaction to inflation. And you've got the the guy that goes to Walmart or the lady that goes to Walmart on a Friday afternoon when they get paid had to stop by the convenience store, fill their car up with gas. First things first, right? You got to have transportation. You got to get from point A to point B. And instead of spending 50 bucks or 40 bucks to fill the vehicle up, it costs 110. Well, that's $60 left they've got to spend at Walmart. I mean, compound that by however many millions of people go to Walmart every day. Target had a very similar story. Um, there are no uh, magic potions. There's no silver bullets left. I mean, it is what it is, and I'm afraid. I mean, Carl Icahn said one day that we all know we're on a party train, and we all know everybody's drunk and we're going to run off into the abyss, but are you getting off first? Am I getting off the party bus first? I mean, there's a cliff there. We know it. You know it. I, everybody on this bus is smart enough to know the party ends somewhere, someplace, somehow, but are you going to be the first one to get off? I'm not. Carl Icahn understands the economy. I want to say something about Jim Cramer. Rev and I were talking to I'm not arguing that Cramer doesn't know the economy. 
Kramer knows the economy. He knows the metrics. He knows the realities of Wall Street and investing. He knows exactly what the Fed has done. He knows the Fed has been reckless and careless. He knows we've been drunk with 0% interest rate and fiat currency. But it doesn't um, serve him well to say those sorts of things in his, in his place of employment. NBC's in on the fix. CNBC's parent company, NBC News, is in on this Keynesian economy. And that's what it is. 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. Here's Bird in Marlboro County. Morning, Bird. Good morning. Good morning, Ken. Uh, great day yesterday in South Carolina for election integrity. A greater day for the voters in South Carolina. Uh, Governor Henry, our great Governor Henry McMaster, he signed uh, Senate Bill 108 into law shortly after 2 o'clock. Uh, South Carolina becomes the uh, best state in the nation, uh, easiest state to vote, and the hardest state to cheat. Uh, just a win-win for everybody. Uh, our state Republican Party, led by Drew McKissick, uh, we had 20 things we wanted in the bill. We got 18 of them, so I guess that's about as good as you can do. Uh, when you're standing at the state house and you got the state chairman of uh, party, Drew McKissick, and the South Carolina Democratic chairman standing hand in hand and uh, uh, talking about how good the bill was, uh, that's probably as close to any kind of bipartisan bill as you can get. So it was just a great day, a great attendance yesterday, probably three to 400 people at the state house. Uh, all the parties that were involved, the Senate leadership, uh, House leadership, individuals from all over the state that were involved in the bill. Um, the leaders of each party, and it's just uh, the governor. Of course, the governor is the final say as he has to sign the bill. And it, it was just a win-win yesterday for everybody, Ken. Thank you, Verd. Appreciate that, my man. Good work. Um, yeah, I did read uh, Jay and Philip, or Jay or Philip, or both will be here. Maybe Mike. We have a standing invitation to our delegation on Friday, and I know we'll address that in specificity and kind of go into detail um, where there's certain things we couldn't get done. Uh, the Republicans in South Carolina should get done what they want to get done because they have such enormous advantages in both chambers and at the governor's, uh, at the executive level as well. 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. Here's Larry in the PD. Hi, Larry. Good morning. Uh, something I wanted to say about inflation, and people need to understand this, and, and just just let this be your mantra. Only the government can cause inflation. You, you, you can say, well, the oil prices went up, but why? If you and I, Ken, were in the oil business and everybody else was charging $5 a gallon for gasoline, but we could get it for $2, what would we charge? We'd charge less than – Yeah, we, we'd, get a, we'd try, right. try to find a competitive advantage in the marketplace. That's right. And if, if the other guy could sell it for four ninety eight, what would he do to us? He would probably go to 98 and we'd go to 97 and we'd create some sort of uh, price war. That. That's, until we all got so low that it was as low as we could stand to sell it. Bingo. That's what we would do. Okay. So the only reason that the price of gas is going up is not. It's not because oil cartels decided that this is what they wanted the price to be. It's because America lost its competitive advantage, and we became a price taker instead of a price maker. Mm -hmm. That's the problem. And the government did that. Why are the rest of everything else going up? Because the government spent money it didn't have and lowered our purchasing power. The only real problem with this is the only person that can solve is the government. They're going to have to do things that aren't very market-friendly. Really, the only thing that solves it is recession. There's really no way around it. But the thing that I really want people to understand, and this is the one thing that I wish everybody really would get in their head is, We've been taught that inflation 
is just a force of nature like gravity. You have it every year. Oh, there's just inflation. Let's just adjust for inflation. Don't forget about inflation. We do not have to live in a monetary system where inflation is just as commonplace as gravity. And that's the part that, that we need to be pushing to change. There's a better way to have our financial system run so that the government can't just run out and steal your money. Because what's getting ready to happen is the way that money is going to get soaked back up out of the economy is every other government now also is facing the same inflation that you and I are facing. And what are they going to do? They can't create money out of thin air like the federal government can. So they're going to do the federal government's dirty work of pulling this money back out of the economy by raising your taxes. Because if you've got a, if you've got you know Florence County or Orangeburg County, Sumter County, you think all those diesel engines that they got to run to work on these roads and fix these ditches and all this kind of stuff. Let's say they spent a million dollars on it last year. This year they're going to spend two and a half million dollars. Where do you think that money's coming from? Sure. They're getting it back from you. So the local governments end up having to be the henchmen of the federal government to take this money back out of the system. So get ready because they're going to have to raise your taxes, and it's not going to be their fault. It's going to be the federal government's fault. But you think that we're going to blame the federal government? Nope. We're going to come blame the local government and say, you just are greedy and all you do is raise taxes. So just get ready for that. But the federal government is the only entity that can cause inflation. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate that. Inflation in a natural economic cycle. I'll give you an example. Um, let's say that um, we've got tomatoes and, and uh, the country consumes X number of tomatoes, X number of bushels or pounds or however they're measured. Um, and we have a frost or a freeze or bad weather. Something happens that that creates a disruption of supply and demand. Same um, same demand, uh, less of a supply. That is a natural reaction. That is what um, capital markets or free markets and capitalist economies, uh, that, that's an inflationary pressure predicated upon what? Supply and demand, right? Uh, the country needs this many tomatoes. The tomato farmers had a bad year because of some uh, weather event, and that distorts what is normal in that cycle. But that's natural inflation. Larry's exactly right. Um and inflation is driven by what the currency is worth. And, and every measure we've taken since 2007 has been, whether intentional or not, I mean, we can debate how many conspiracies are involved in this, but whether it's been intentional or not, it has devalued the dollars of which you're paid in. Rev gets a paycheck for X number of dollars. I get a paycheck for X number of dollars. I believe that paycheck gives me, um, you know, so much purchasing power. Well, since 2007, really and truly since the 70s, and we left the gold standard and fiat currency was normalized, and we didn't base the value of our currency on a hard asset, um, we, we just entered off into la-la-la-la land. And it, it, became, it was gradual, and then it became um, a lot faster, and the velocity was a lot um, more, I don't know, easier to understand for me. I don't know how many of you understand this. And once again, I'm not an economist, guys. But, but I, I've, I've lived in the private sector. I've spent all of my adult life running a business. And I don't know that anybody ever sat me down and said, have you ever read this book about economic forces? You ever read this book about inflation? But 10 years ago, I started a radio show. So I took all of those practical experiences I had in my life and I transitioned to more of a, I mean, I didn't have to just understand it. I've got to be able to explain it. For a long time, I understood it. I just didn't have to explain it to anybody. I had to live with it. And I had to figure out a way to keep my head above water as a small business owner and, um, you know, kind of kind of a, a quasi-entrepreneur. 
Uh, maybe that's an insult to the world entrepreneur. Maybe I'm giving myself more credit <laughs> than I deserve. Uh, but but I've you know I've I've, I've had entrepreneurial uh, leanings and biases about me uh, pretty much all of my adult life because my father was the consummate entrepreneur. But 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 Larry's right. I mean the, the the devaluing of the dollar. That's the inflationary pressures I'm talking about. And when we talk about macroeconomic stimulus, that's simply injecting liquidity in the, to, into the economy to advantage someone over someone else. Now, I would argue that the if you want to call it a transfer of wealth, it would be from the taxpayer to the investor class. And that's why I said earlier, um, the Dow is worth a multiple of six, what it was in 2007, eight. How many of your lives financially are six times better today than they were in 2007 or eight? Now, now once again, intentionality, conspiracy, I don't have any idea. What were the motivation? These aren't incompetent people. I mean, some of these folks in government are unbelievably incompetent. The folks running the Fed, the, the people making these economic decisions, they have a understanding of what they're doing and what will happen when they do. I'm not talking about the Krugmans of the world. I mean, he's a Keynesian economist. I mean, he ascribes to modern monetary theory. But if modern monetary theory were valid, you know what a gallon of gas would be today? about 225 or 230. We would have an increase. It may be three, but we would have had an increase because the government on day one said we're not going to continue with the Keystone Pipeline. We're, we're, going to, um, we're going to become, as Larry said, we're going to become purchasers instead of producers, and that does skew the marketplace. That does have a kind of an inflationary effect there. But, but at the end of the day, the biggest component of inflation in America today is how we've devalued our currency. Take a break. Back in a minute. There he goes. That's Jim Cramer from 2008, the famous They Know Nothing. And what are you saying about Cramer? Well, I mean, but, but Cramer's advocating for, for you know, what's uh, quantitative easing. Well, so so what's what's his goal if he's a, a basically a paid talking head on CNBC? Bail my buddies out. Bail my buddies out. My buddies are underwater. My buddies run these hedge funds. My buddies run these big financial institutions. Bail my buddies out. My buddies are insolvent. My buddies running Bank of America. My buddies running Citigroup. My buddies running Goldman Sachs. They don't have any solvency. They made bad loans. We um, subprime lending and bundling and quanti- you know um, synthetic derivatives. I mean, a lot of the recklessness that was involved in that. Kramer is showing his true colors. Jim Kramer is a smart man. Jim Kramer knows the economy, but Jim Kramer more than anything is a Wall Street insider. That's why he got the job. That's how he understands so much about it. But when Kramer lost it in two thousand eight, Jim Kramer's not saying do the patriotic thing. You know, love America. Let, let's put America back on a path to prosperity. Kramer is saying, my buddies are going broke, and the only people that can help is you, the taxpayer. Help them. Save them. Bail them out. 843-661-0937. So what was he saying yesterday? The, and this this is what got me thinking about and, and remembering that they know nothing. Rare. Here's the is, danger. Is he talked about how bad yesterday was on, on a tweet. Here's the danger with now as opposed to then. Then it was fairly isolated. Subprime lending and the housing sector. Now, it had a domino effect, and it's building into a lot of other areas of the economy. We have so many issues now. I mean, we have so many problems now. That, that's my di- biggest concern. Um, it was subprime lending and the housing economy. Now, now once again, th- there were dominoes that failed that led to a lot of other problems. I just think right now we're in a far more tedious position than we were in 2008. Let's go to the phone. Here's Breeze. Good morning, Breeze. Hey, kids. Um, I have no point to make. I just have a question. 
if you were a senator or a member of the House in Washington with any kind of power, what would you as a Republican, what would you do? And I'll I just, I just ask you a question. So what would you do to try to reverse this? What would be your game plan? In other words, what should they do? But I want you to tell me what. I'll, I'll, I'll hang up and listen. But I would like maybe at the end of the break for you to come up with what would be your ideas of what to do to save this mess. Interesting. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. I don't know that I can do that on the fly, but I can do it in a break. I mean, I've got some ideas. I mean, I've talked to people in that world about things that I think would make sense. Um, some agree, some disagree. Um, remember last week when we talked about Mike Rickenbaugh, you know, and, and, and Philip Lowe, Philip's been there a while, Mike just got there, uh, that there's kind of a honeymoon period where people give you the benefit of the doubt. Then you've got to figure out a way to integrate yourself into the machine, into the system. You don't have to sell your soul, but you, you're part of governing now. Um, so, so yeah, let, let's uh, sit tight. Let's take a break. We'll come back on the other side, and I'll offer up what I think are reasonable proposals on what to do uh, for what I – now, I could be wrong. I, I'm saying these things are heading our way. Some disagree with me. Take a break. Back in a minute. It's Thursday morning. Reggie Armstrong is with us. Good morning, Reggie. How are you? Doing well. I was supposed to be – you know, I had planned, Ken, to talk about – you know, since this is our 25th anniversary, it's on the morning news. Uh, you know, we were going to talk about uh, that we've got an open house all day long, uh, food catered by Venus, Chamber of Commerce business after hours this evening from 530 to 7. But for some strange reason, I have a feeling people would rather hear us chat about something else. Well, I had two things written down. That was one. I mean, I did read your announcement. Congratulations. That's a big deal. And we'll get back to that uh, as we wrap up. But yeah, that, that 25 years doing this. Congratulations. And um, and you become a very important part of our Thursday mornings. So um, not just congratulations on 25 years, but thank you for the contributions you've made to this very feeble attempt at Radio Brilliance. <laughs> Well, it's, it's, it's a great partnership. I, I certainly feel that way. I hope you guys do. We, I can't tell you how many people, when they, they come to at least investigate to see if we're a good fit, and, and we want to see if they're a good fit for us as well, uh, how many of them will say, heard you on the radio, which, which you know, again, I think your audience is, is both broad and deep. So. Thank you, Reggie. Very kind of you. And I, want, I want to do this. I, I, I can give reckless, careless opinions because that's kind of what I get paid to do. You, you've got to be more guarded and more careful because you have an obligation and an official responsibility as a financial advisor or a wealth planner. But but I, I, want, I want to lead into something and get your take on this. Um, why do I feel eerily similar to the way I felt in 2007 when, when some things just appeared to me, Reggie, to be very tedious and on edge. Help, help me deal with that. Um, well, I think it's because we're seeing such a similar. Well, I mean, it's again, history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. And and we're there are a number of of things that are very similar to 0708. There's not the, uh, you know, we don't have this subprime mortgage issue. Uh, we don't. I mean, people are starting to borrow too much again. But overall, we don't have a subprime uh, mortgage issue. Banks are very well capitalized. They're in much better financial shape. So that type of crisis doesn't seem to be around. But we do have other things. You know, we've got inflation, the highest in 40 years. And if it was actually measured the same way it was measured over 40 years ago, it would even be higher than back in the early 1980s. And 
perhaps what you're you're sensing is is just the way things have been uh, getting popped here. The bubbles are the, the bubble is deflating, uh, in my opinion. Uh, bear markets and they, uh, you know again. By the S&P 500, we're not officially in a bear market. We're really back where we were about a week ago. In fact, we were looking at, at, at numbers, and you know we're still slightly higher than a week ago, believe it or not, after yesterday, but barely. Uh, uh, and it depends on which market, but, but the S&P is still, you know, it's down about not quite 18%. Uh, the NASDAQ now is down over 27%, so it's technically in a bear market. So we don't really know if we're really headed into something even worse but most really ugly, nasty bears, uh, a couple, two things they have in common. One is they're really, really they, they go from black bear to grizzly bear when they're inside a recession. And we're not inside a recession yet as far as we know, but boy, are we in a very slow growth mode. And we, are, we were in such an inflated bubble, my opinion, my analysis, that – we're, you know, according to Warren Buffett's measure, uh, the, what he called in 2001, Ken, his favorite measure, um, what's called, and I don't need to explain all the details to everybody. They can always call me if they want more details. But in December, the market was, and you may recall me mentioning this, 70% overvalued by his measure. Well, even after all this letting out of the air, out of the, out of the balloon, we're still about 33% or so overvalued. And most markets don't stop when they hit fair value. They go a little bit below. So one of the things, and to get to your question uh, specifically, is you know we've got high inflation. We've got government that doesn't, you know, that not only doesn't seem to know what they're doing, but actually, you know, conducting policies that, in my opinion, make make it a lot worse. And then all the stuff that was the high flyers of a year ago are, you know, have either already popped or are popping. And that is very typical of a bear market. Your 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 frothiest stuff goes first. The dot coms in two thousand, you know, they they pop first. Does that make any sense, Ken? Sure, it does. Okay, Reggie, you're not a policymaker. You're not in charge of the federal budget. You're not in charge of where uh, we drill for oil and whether energy independence a priority or not. I mean, that's left to the political folks. But but you do have a um, you do have an understanding of how to react to those things that you have so little control over. Um, what sort of mindset should an investor have when it appears the government is doing things that aren't long-term beneficial to the economy, hence investing? Um, I think the, the primary thing investors need to do is to, uh, is to be extremely flexible. And ideally, they prepared their portfolios several months ago. The market gave you a warning in January and February. You know, I mean, even months and months ago, what we were saying, the market is expensive, the market is expensive. But it's been expensive for years. You know, and if you're too early, it's the same as being wrong. But when the market gave us that first downdraft and you started seeing some of the frothy st- stuff kind of pop and then stocks, when they're missing earnings, dropping 20% or more in one day, um, that was a big warning that something's going on. When we saw inflation starting to rise, that's a big warning something's going on. And when I say be flexible in a portfolio, that means you have to sort of hedge for the possibilities. Um, yeah, we've got high inflation right now, but you know what solves inflation? A recession. And that's an equal risk. I, I believe we're, we're going to have persistent inflation. 
um, unless we get a recession. But, but I think the odds of a recession continue to, ro- continue to rise. And so the, what you have in a portfolio to hedge against the risk of inflation uh, versus recession is a little, can be a little different. So, you know, it, it's a simple portfolio probably doesn't help as much as it used to. And so, you know, people need to be careful. You know, for example, if you went, you know, hog wild, uh, pun intended, into commodities uh, because of all this inflation, well, yesterday commodities fell 2%. That's some change. You got to be careful uh, going all one direction. Uh, bonds, you know, I. I had a, a webinar on bonds, Ken. I really should have titled it. I, I only think of the t- – I'm not like you. I, I can't think of catchy titles off the, on the fly. Um, you know, uh, after I gave that webinar on bonds, I said, you know, I should have titled it Bonds Behaving Badly. You know, that, I mean, I think that would have been catchy. Um, uh, I'm just not I'm, – I'm only good after the fact, obviously. But yesterday and in the last week or so, bonds have sort of stabilized and started acting – uh, like the hedge they normally are in this time. So give you, I'm going to give you quick numbers before we wrap up. So yesterday, the S&P fell just over 4%. But the bond market, as measured by the aggregate bond index, rose about 0.4. So, you know, this year, having 60% in stocks, 40% in bonds, as measured by those indices, uh, has been a pretty lousy portfolio. Uh, in fact, up until about mid-April, you were down as much as stocks, even if you had bonds. But then bonds, bonds started doing a little bit better. But yesterday, S&P fell four. If you had a 60%, 40% bond mix, 60% stock, 40% bonds, you fell about 2.25, 2.3, somewhere around there. Again, not comfortable, but 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 uh, certainly less of a hit. So I think in these times where you know a lot of people are saying, well, it's just about over. It's just about over. Again, I heard you uh, playing some Jim Cramer earlier on March 25th of this year. Jim said the bar the bear market's over. Bye bye bye. Basically, you know. Well, uh, not yet, Jim. You know, and um, you know this. If this is a true bear, we might just be getting started. But we won't know until we're well along the way, so people just really need to review what they have. Just review what you have, get a good, solid second or third opinion. You're very well explained, Reggie, but you are having your 25th anniversary today. Um, Let's circle back to that. Um, Who's invited? uh, What's in store? And and congratulations on your 25th anniversary. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, Yeah, it's, you know, I started in this industry. Again, I, I was military for eight years before. Um, but it's, I started in this industry in 1997, May of actually of 97, and then 20 years ago, I uh, went completely independent with my business partner, uh, Lee Carter. We went completely independent in April of tw- 2002, so we've been independent 20 years. We've been in this specific building at 1807 West 7th Street, Suite A, for 10 years, so it's kind of a neat multiple anniversary, and we're having an open house so come in any time between really 8.30 and 7, 8.30 a.m. and 7 p.m. We'll have breakfast foods in the morning uh, catered by Venus. And then at the lunchtime, we'll have lunch foods catered by Venus. And it's just we've invited, of course, our clients, but anybody. It's a low-key way to kind of 
see what we look like. Uh, we're not going to be doing any investing type of work. We're just going to eat and enjoy company. And then in the evening, uh, from 5.30 to 7, it's a, a Chamber of Commerce business after hours, much like they do at a, a lot of other locations, which I'm sure you can walk in on that as well. Okay. Congratulations, Reggie. Thank you for allowing us to be a part of it, and we'll talk next Thursday. Absolutely. Stay safe in your bunker, my friend. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I'm hunkering down here. Thank you a lot. 843-661-0937. We were having a very spirited debate. Reggie had a good time there to call, but uh, Breeze asked a very provocative question. Uh, Mr. Know-it-all, what would you do <laughs> if you were in charge of, uh, if you are in control of the levers of government? Well, I mean, I don't, that, that's an easy question to ask, but a hard one to answer because there are no easy answers. I mean, there are some fairly radical opinions I have, um, and there are some fairly mainstream opinions I have. I, I can tell you this. I'm not the guy that wants to suspend the gas tax. I mean, that, that's a Band-Aid. I mean, that's really intrusive. That doesn't fix anything. That, that appeases the masses. It gets us to a little bit better place in the interim. And I understand that if you're out there paying X number of dollars for gas, I'm doing the same thing you're doing. I mean, I'm getting gas from the same place you're getting. Um, I get as frustrated and angry. I mean, I'm to the point, and I told uh, Reb earlier this morning, I get angry now when, when I ride by. You know, I get angry at the damn Republicans who thought Trump was worse than Biden. Right. I mean, that's who I'm angry with. I understand the nuts on the left. I mean, they, you know, they're lost. I mean, they, they, they've um, they've abandoned any sense of decency or morality or thoughtfulness. I mean, they're just nuts on a rampage. But, but the people I'm angry at are those Republicans like Mitt Romney, like George W. Bush, um, like, uh, you know, a lot of these guys, Nicole Wallace comes to mind, Matthew Dowd, who have professed an allegiance to the Republican Party. They really believed that Joe Biden was a better choice than Donald Trump. Lincoln no. Project. Well, I mean, they didn't believe that, Rev. They just had their feelings hurt, and they were going to take it out on somebody. This is our Republican Party, and we get to be in charge of who runs it, and and we get to call the shots and make the rules, and, and the rest of you— um. You know, uh, rednecks, bumpkins, and hayseeds kind of get in line, and we didn't get in line. So, so their retribution was: we'll show you, we'll vote for the Democrats, and here we are with an incompetent presidency and a political party that once again has abandoned any sense of decency they've ever had. I mean, it's attack, attack, attack. Um, label people racist and homophobic and transphobic and I mean if they don't fit in this little small see they want a Republican party because they need some boogeyman but they want the party to be in a box about the size of a ring box I mean that's kind of where they are today damn them is what I say damn every one of them um, and but but the realities are uh, that there are radical propositions or proposals I could make and then there's kind of a more mainstream um, take I'll just conclude this segment then we'll come back Mike we got a couple of callers here and i want to answer breeze's question because it's got my you know juices flowing it's got my um feeble brain stimulated a bit i want to hear um, what you have to well, say I mean, i'll go back to jefferson jefferson didn't vote for or against but when i'm a little bit anxious or confused you know where i go what did jefferson say in my faith in my life of faith what would jesus do what would jefferson do what would jefferson say about the situation we're in today well i can tell you this Jefferson didn't vote for or against the Federal Reserve because there was no Fed when he was there. He didn't like the the idea of a national bank. He didn't like, you know, bankers um, uh, collaborating from one country to another. In fact, Jefferson said that banking institutions will prove to be more dangerous to our liberties than standing armies. Wow. 
I mean, he said this in 17, might have been 1802 or 3 uh, when, when he says this, but, but Jefferson basically knew that if we started down the road of federalizing banking and having the ability to print money, um, so, so radically speaking, no, nah, this probably wouldn't even be radical. As part of my mainstream plan, I would abolish the Fed. We make, Friedman had kind of a, a computer model that he believed could uh, better monitor and police monetary uh, policy and provide liquidity to the economy when it needed it, uh, take away liquidity when it needed it. But he didn't think it would have the human influences of Wall Street and, and the banking profession and the political favoritism and nepotism that we know is so intimately involved. The first thing you got to do is make us produce more energy. I mean, you don't curb consumption. We're not going to do that. We're, we're, going, to, we're going to secure every, every single element of energy in this country. We're going to aggressively pursue. We're going to be, we, we throw the terminology energy independent. Uh, more than that, whatever this country can produce in energy uh, and economically, in an economically feasible way, that is going to be our priority. I mean, we can address that pretty quickly. What, what is the price of gas reflective of? The market today or what they expect the market to be? I mean, what they expect the market to be. See, I'm already doing the brake sign because yep. I get long-winded. I forget about Reggie, and Reggie took up a lot of my time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and we, got, we have John Decker. <laughs> well, we do. 843-661-0937. We've got another two and a half hours. And once again, I've got some radical ideas, and I've got some other but fairly mainstream ideas. I like where you're going. I ideas. like it. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843 Thursday morning. John Decker, Great Television Senior National Editor, White House Correspondent is with us. Why do we say Great Television every Thursday? Because they own WMBF. That was our debate affiliate. That's right. Our partnership with WMBF, the NBC affiliate in Myrtle Beach, and WIS, the NBC affiliate in Columbia. I want to repeat myself real quick before we get to John. Um, I've got it on good sources that a poll will be made public Monday or Tuesday next week on the Tom Rice election in Congressional District Number 7 uh, in South Carolina. The Republican primary, 7th Congressional Republican primary, involves a candidate endorsed by Trump and a candidate who voted for the impeaching of Donald Trump. We don't have a lot of public polling. I know we got some internals. We're not privy to that. But there will be a poll done over the weekend, and by the first of next week, we'll have some hard, solid numbers uh, in relation to what the standings are and where people's minds are in the 7th Congressional District. John, good morning. How are you? I'm doing great, Ken. Hope you're doing well today. We are doing well. Some folks who aren't doing so well are those who have small babies, infants, um, looking for formula, certain, I don't know, mixtures of formula are preferred by some parents over others. Uh, President Biden yesterday, I think, enacted the Defense Production Act in relation to baby formula. What can you tell us about that? Well, that's right. You know, this comes two months after an Abbott Laboratories plant in Michigan was shut down by the FDA for not being in compliance. Uh, so there are those critics who say that the administration should have foreseen uh, this shortage in baby formula, given that that plant was shut down and that the administration is, as a result, acting reactive to this. Uh, regardless, uh, the president did indeed invoke the Defense Production Act. It is rarely invoked by a president, Ken. Uh, however, having said that, uh, former President Trump invoked the DPA, the Defense Production Act, uh, dealing with the COVID pandemic. Why was that? For the shortage that we had uh, seen at the time in PPE. Uh, that was the reason why uh, former President Trump uh, used that 
a rarely used portion of the law uh, to increase production of PPE. Uh, and look, this is uh, something that will not be seen in terms of increasing supply right away. It does take time to ramp up production. But uh, in due course, I think we'll see this problem ameliorate itself. Another inside Washington story that I don't think many of our listeners are paying close attention to, gas is $4.40 a gallon. You can't find baby formula. But um, Finland right. and Sweden have um, requested membership in the NATO. Is that the proper way to, to articulate that? It is. Absolutely. It is the right way to articulate it. In fact, the leaders of both countries will be meeting with President Biden today at the White House. Uh, I interviewed uh, yesterday the Swedish ambassador to the U.S., uh, and they see this as something that is so necessary because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. To be under the umbrella of NATO, where you have this Article 5 portion of its charter in which an attack on one is an attack on all. That is really important uh, for the security of both Finland and Sweden. Uh, Finland, by the way, has an 830-long-mile border with Russia, so they're always concerned uh, about their neighbor, uh, and uh, Sweden as well. So uh, that is something uh, that uh, has taken place. You need all 30 members of NATO to agree to uh, these two new members, and you have one member of NATO that uh, appears to be reluctant. That's Turkey. Turkey has, has expressed some reluctance about that, but the White House, other NATO members feel that uh, that they can convince Turkish President Erdogan uh, to reverse course and, and permit these two new countries into the defense alliance. John, both of these stories are inside the Beltway. I mean, th- these are stories, obviously, that you pay close attention to, that I pay close attention to. I got a friend of mine who's a chief of staff for a member of Congress. He worked for me when I was a lieutenant governor of South Carolina, and he and I share text uh, more this week than we ever have about the disconnect, the realities of inside the Beltway and some of these stories that are paramount and seriously considered. And then you get out to what I call flyover country, and it's gas and baby formula and college education and sure. you know, the budget isn't working. Is, is there that much disconnect? I mean, you're there. You've been there a long time, and, but you have a practical understanding that, that most people aren't inside the Beltway, that most people are operating and functioning in a way removed to that. But, but is there consideration given by the folks you interact with that there is this deep, I don't want to say divide, but rather disconnect? Well, I think that's a good way to put it. There is a disconnect, you know. Um, Having said that, you know, the, the issues that we just discussed, you know, including NATO membership, that's important. Uh, uh, certainly the issue in regards to Russia's invasion of Ukraine is important. But on a daily basis, that's not the issue that's motivating voters. Uh, the issue that will motivate voters likely in November is the issue of inflation, high gas prices, uh, high prices when we go to the grocery store. And uh, to a certain extent, you know, you don't uh, see that focus by the White House on those particular pocketbook issues every day. Uh, and, you know, maybe that will uh, change in the months ahead leading up to the midterms. Uh, but, you know, that is the reason why I think that you're texting your friend is because uh, you're talking about one thing. Uh, Washington's doing something else and focusing on something else and uh, uh, sort of missing the forest for the trees there in terms of the most important issues impacting most voters. Well explained. John, thank you for your time. Appreciate it. Have a good weekend, sir. Thanks, Ken. Thanks for having me on today. Have a great weekend and talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Do the same. Great Television Senior National Editor, White House Correspondent John Decker. Um, yeah, I was, I've been texting my buddy. I call him my buddy. He's a guy that worked for me when I was in Columbia. He's the Chief of Staff for a member of Congress now. Um, actually, Ralph Norman's Chief of Staff is who he is. And, um, and, and he and I, he was asking me about NATO. You know, what do your listeners think about NATO and Finland and Sweden? I said, you don't want to know what my listeners think. 
My, you know, because you guys, I mean, I don't want to say sold his soul, but he's got a good job inside the Beltway. And he's got to be careful about his way of life. And he knows that I'm out here amongst you creatures, you know, in flower country. I'm one of you creatures in flower country. And um, I'll tell you, I mean, I, I text him. I said, I'll give you my opinion of NATO, Finland and Sweden. That's two more countries we got to pay the freight for. You know, I mean, 28 is not enough. I mean, we're carrying the water for 28 members of NATO. Why in the hell do we want to care for 30 members yeah, like of Trump. NATO? You know, are the Finlands and Swedes going to sign a bunch of checks and give them to America to, you know, to meet their obligations and responsibilities? But there is a decorum. that There is a process. Um, my buddy's as flyover as I am, but he's inside the beltway now. He's inside the bubble. He's in the belly of the beast, and he, I find him a little bit um, more unrelatable. Uh, once again, he didn't text me about gas prices, didn't text me about baby formula, text me about what I thought you would think about NATO, Finland, and Sweden. I don't know how many of you have thought about NATO, Finland, and Sweden. I haven't. Um, every now and then, I think about the Sweden um, women's volleyball team uh, in this warped, demented kind of way, but that's about as much as I think of, of Sweden. God bless Sweden for not you know caving into some of the nonsense during COVID. Um, so, yeah, but when I think of NATO, Finland, and Sweden, I automatically think of, okay, there's two more countries that we'll end up paying the freight for once they become a member of, um, of NATO. I want to go back to this. Uh, Breeze asked a very... Um, I want to hear your plan. You, I mean, you started it, to articulate your but, plan. But it's not a plan. It, it's a starting point. Yeah. But the plan would be... But the issues you would address well, I mean, the, the if issues, you were in control sure. of government. Sure. And once again, we can do some of these... Um, kind of um things in the interim we can suspend the gas tax i mean that does give people a little more uh relief at the pumps but that's not that's not an answer you don't believe that's a, a solution i don't buy that's a solution um suspend the gas tax or not if we want to put a band-aid on a um on cancer then let's do it but we don't want to really treat the cancer and treating the cancer is going to require some pretty serious considerations to be given um you can say this is radical i would argue it's not I am a fan of abolishing the Federal Reserve. I think we have had legalized counterfeiting long enough. And that's exactly what it is, guys. Legalized counterfeiting. But the government is legalized counterfeiting money. Uh, They can do it. You can't. Put a printing press in your basement and print off a bunch of $100 bills and see how that works (laughs) out for you. Yeah. Well, I mean, I like that. That's clever. (laughs) That's because you're uh, a hardcore conservative. Uh, I figured you. That's the red meat that I give every now and then. Um, but, but no, when you abolishing the Federal Reserve sounds dramatic and it sounds radical and it sounds out of the mainstream, it has to happen. It's not going to fix itself. It's too encumbered to these um, inside the Beltway. We just talked about inside the Beltway. How many people work at the Fed that have friendly relationships with Goldman Sachs or J.P. Morgan or BlackRock? Those people aren't going to fix it. The fix is going to have to come externally. So I would be a fan, sound like Ron Paul now, abolish the Federal Reserve, replace it with some sort of monetary monitoring process. Maybe it's computerized. I mean, maybe we have human oversight. I don't know what the answer is. But but what we have is not working because what we have is turned into a parlor game. It's legalized counterfeiting of money. The federal government appropriates funds. The Federal Reserve prints money and buys that debt. How is that not a casino? I mean, we're the most powerful nation on this planet, and we've reduced ourselves to a place where your government spends money they don't have, 
but we have somewhat of a backstop and a get-out-of-jail-free card in the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve says we'll buy that debt, but we don't have any money, but we have the one thing nobody else has, and that is the power to create money out of thin air. But that, in essence, is that a banana republic or not? But is that sound monetary policy or not? No, of course it's not. And it leads to, as Larry said, it leads to this rampant inflation. And, and every now and then it hits between the eyes. You deal with far more inflation than you imagine. You know it. You just subconsciously uh, aren't aware of it. You've become accustomed to it. Hardened by it. Accepting of it. Um, when did a shirt cost $30? When did a pair of sneakers cost $100? You know, when did this meal go from, you know, $6 to $12? But that didn't happen just now. That's being with us. And that's been fairly pervasive and prevailing, but the way we've dealt with it, uh, it goes back to the commercial we play on the radio show. You know, borrow money to go on vacation, borrow money to fix your dryer or washer. But if we didn't have all these inflationary pressures, most people would have enough money. The the problem in America today is not income. It's inflation. The the problem in America the past 30 years has not been income. I mean, I could argue easily that China— we basically exported a lot of our wage appreciation within the working class because of some trade policies we made and allowing or, or, or blessing uh, in 2001 China becoming a member of the World Trade Organization. Um, so you got you know a couple of things kicking there. But, but in all honesty, the reason you feel um, poorer than you did, and that's not a recent phenomenon, that the $4.25 gallon of gas, I mean, that's right between the eyes. I mean, you pull up the convenience store, and, and they put the gas price every day. If we put the price of chicken or beef or cotton or any other sort of commodity, you know, I'm thinking about shirts, and I'm thinking about cotton. What, you know, we may, a lot of us wear cotton shirts. Um, I mean, if, if, we, if we put a price of a cotton shirt on a sign outside of TJ Maxx or Belk or some other department store, I mean, if we did that every day, it, w- it, it would be very revealing to us. In 1975, this shirt called such and such when we abandoned the gold standard and, and, and kind of fell in love with the monetary policy of the Federal Reserve, uh, the shirt became this expensive. So, so it's not the problem in America today. It's not that the person making 50 grand a year can't make it on their income. The problem are the inflationary pressures created by the Federal Reserve, the imbalance of your wage increases in relation to the devaluing of your dollar. And the government cooks the books. I mean, we know CPI. We know a lot of the other ways they monitor and police. I'll give you an example. Um, if a Honda Accord comes with, uh, if it's 20, oh, that's a wishful thinking there, 50,000. I mean, I, I can't believe I think a car cost. I mean, that's amazing to me. I mean, that, that is, you're talking about flabbergasted. <laughs> uh, when I look at a used vehicle, somebody pulled up in the gym the other day with a, with a truck. And, you know, I'm looking around always at trucks. And I said, I had a couple of minutes before I go in the gym. And I'm going, I like that truck. I mean, it was a, a kind of a, one of these new GMC trucks. I like that truck. It's not a brand new one, three years old. Um, so I Google, I think Car Gurus or something came up. Um, 2019 GMC half-ton pickup, like $60,000. Mm-hmm. I mean, for a, I mean, like 50. Well, we've seen that advertisement playing on the TV here in the studio the other day. I pointed at it. <clears throat> it said, you know, starting at just eighty nine nine ninety five. dollars I mean, that's crazy. That, how does anybody well anyway i'm not i'm not blaming gm i mean i, I really no. and truly go back to the inflationary element created and and perpetuated by the federal reserve which is in essence uh i know they say they're not 
uh, a part of the government, but it was created in 1913 by President Woodrow Wilson. It was born in government. Damn it, it ought to die in government. It's, it's had its run. It's had 109 years. The last 30 or 40 have been atrocious, and they have devastated the Americans' purchasing power. So, so Breeze, the first two things I would do, well, I got three things. The first three things I would do, if I chaired the committee to put America back on its economic path or the good economic path forward, I would um, produce more energy. What does that mean? I don't know. But every every ounce of energy available to be produced in America, I would be on board with. I would I would consider the economy. I would be stewards of the planet. But these damn greenies would not get in my way. These tree huggers would have to sit in the back room, and we would produce energy um, here in America and not have to worry about exporting it. It'd be wind. It'd be solar. It'd be nuclear. It'd be oil. It'd be coal. It'd be natural gas. We would produce. We consume more energy than anybody in the world. We produce more energy than anybody in the world. We are abundant in natural resources. We can do this. So there's number one. That takes care of or addresses, to some degree, the energy issue in America. I'd cut federal spending by 2% across the board. Do some divisions of government, some agencies of government, deserve to be cut more and others less? Yeah, but that's getting too specific and detailed, and it would never happen. So I would pass an order or edict demanding of government agencies in every government agent in America cut spending 2%. They can do it. They could probably do 10 or 12 or 15%, but I would slow walk them into believing we've got to address some of these problems in America today. So across the board spending cut of 2%, and I would abolish the Federal Reserve and create some other sort of monetary uh, instrument that may be computer and may be backstopped or over, you know some human oversight there, but it would monitor, gauge, measure. There wouldn't be any nepotism or favoritism or the, the, the revolving door of Goldman and BlackRock and the Federal Reserve and the Treasury Department. Those are three things I would start. You know, we could suspend the gas tax. I mean, you can drink, you know, you can drink a beer with 90 calories. Or you can drink a beer with 200 calories. You drink it real beer or you want flavored water. I mean, we can give you the flavored water and we can suspend the gas tax. But that's, that's a Band-Aid on cancer. We've got to get after some of these problems. Uh, we need to produce more energy. We need to cut federal spending. And we need to do something about this nonsense that we continue to refer to as the, the monitoring policy or the monitoring element within our government as it relates to monetary policy. Take a break. Back in just a minute. 843 Let's go to the phone. Here is Joe in Hartsville. Thanks for holding on, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. The, the biggest problem right now is the government has our Congress has abdicated their responsibility to to monetary policy. They gave it to the Fed. The government causes inflation. Your earlier caller was right. But the government also benefits from that same inflation. And I remember in the military, every time we got a little pay raise, about 2%, everything around the base went up 3%. So we could never stay in touch with, you know, the the inflation as far as that goes. But the only way Reagan was able to get out of it was we we were on less than a trillion dollars in debt then. But, you know, they raised the interest rates above the inflation rate. And they grew the economy out. They had a hard time for about three years. But he ended up growing the economy. 
The only people that push for $15 an hour are government employees. And when you do that, you double the minimum wage, and and the government gets an immediate 15% bump in income. You know, the government's budgets are based on 8% growth every year. So whenever they say, we cut the budget by 4%, or we cut spending by 4%, that means they only spent 4% more than they spent last year. So they're lying to you right off the bat. And then I've heard people talk about, oh, we need to go to gold standard. Well, that cat's out the bag. In order for us to go to a gold standard, the United States would have to have 100,000 tons of gold at $10,000 an ounce. You know, and that's only like $30 trillion worth. And I don't think there's 100,000 tons of gold in the world. So you're right. We got to go after energy. I mean, every energy. And the reason everything's so fake is they're trying to shut down nuclear. Nuclear is the cleanest energy we got. And a byproduct of the nuclear energy is hydrogen. And they can develop a hydrogen car, which the byproduct of that is water. But they don't want to do that. That's why I keep telling you, I think this is all intentional. Because they know how to get prices down. By releasing the, the reserves of the oil, he knows that's more supply, less cost. But you can only do that until you run out of your reserves. And then once we do that, the world will pounce on us because they know we can't afford to fight a war. So that's dangerous to start with. And all this talk about doing away with gas taxes, that's temporary garbage. You got to increase the supply, and I'm for all of the above: wind power, solar, gas, hydrogen, nuclear, whatever we can come up with. But you cannot cut off ninety percent of your energy and expect costs to go down. I mean, it's it's fundamentally against. Well, I mean, it doesn't work. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. We got time for another call. Okay, uh, let's go there. Yep. Barry and Shaw. Hey, Barry. Hey, good morning, guys. Hey, Ken, since your buddy wants to know our opinions on that, can you ask your buddy why we're sending $53 billion to support Ukraine for five months? That sounds like a great idea. Uh, ask your buddy uh, what's the administration done for the people of the United States since they've uh, came into office, and all they care about is the beltway, like you said. Uh, we give 16% of the of the uh, NATO funds. Us and Germany are at 16.36. United Kingdom is at 11.29. France is the next closest. And then the rest of the countries give less than 5% to to NATO. So we're sending $53 billion. Just happens to be around the number that we were sending to Afghanistan every year over the last five years. So you kind of get where the money's going to go. Wash the money, come back over to the defense budget. Yeah. That's kind of where it's going. Y'all have a great one. Thank you, Barry. I mean, an America first mm-hmm. agenda to me consists of policy that empowers the American working class. So the things I'm talking about deal with, I mean, I think they deal with inflation. I mean, we don't change it tomorrow or the next day. And Joe's exactly right about, you know, Washington. If um, a 2% spending cut in Washington 
is 6% growth instead of 8% growth or 6 instead of 4 instead of instead of 6. Um, I'm talking about real cuts. And I would actually argue that 2% is the start. 2% this year and another two years, another two. You want to see another... the swamp fight back? Well, let me do sure. That. You're going to deal with every special interest under the sun, every lobbying power under the sun, every consulting agency under the sun. But if you want to get this country back at a strong standing, it'll take tough decisions. Back in a minute. If you can buy one of these $90,000 vehicles, you're an upper percenter as far as I'm mm. concerned. What is an upper percenter? Same thing as a one percenter, two percenter, three so. percenters. Yeah, when do you top. become an upper an upper center? Upper percenter. Is it ten percent? Is it twelve percent? Fifteen percent? Okay, but I mean, when is that? I mean, I mean, seriously, let's have a debate. So, so when is someone an upper percenter? I mean, we know the one percenters yeah, the are upper percenters, percent. and the one tenth of one percent is a five percenter an upper percenter. Heck yeah! Is a twenty percenter an upper percenter? That's way up there, right? Um, is a thirty per? You see where I'm headed? Yep. I mean, if yep. you're in one, if you, if you make more than two thirds of the country, you're still an upper percenter yep. to some degree. Um, yeah, basically, I guess yeah. basically over 50% would make you an upper percenter in a way. Right, yeah. Um, mathematically, right. you would be in the upper half. Therefore, you would be, I don't know by definition, you would be an upper <laughs> Whatever percenter. Whatever upper percenter means, Mike. Yeah, there you go. Whatever that means, freehold jersey, Mike. Um, the guy that went to school, or the guy whose father went to school at Springsteen. Hey, Keith Richards, uh, Rev takes joy in sending me these things. <laughs> so I'm on the beach Saturday. And, and I waited till late Saturday when I knew you'd be on the beach and likely – you know, well into your weekend celebration. <laughs> Easy now. <laughs> Just Easy. Saying, am I wrong? Well, it's Saturday afternoon. Exactly. Okay, in the summer. <laughs> and we're pretty close to summer. I do. Um, I took a 12-pack and ran out. <laughs> the weather was nice. I I'm getting just... too old for that. My wife gets mad. She never got mad with me earlier. But she gets angry with me. Now, I'm not angry, frustrated. When are you coming in? When are you coming in? You know, I mean, I'm like, I don't know. I got my, my Bluetooth speaker and I got, you know, my muscle shirt. I'm You're good to set. go. Just le- let me be. Leave me alone i'm contemplating uh the affairs of man eight four three six six one but i sent you an article uh, i wanted to skip this but no, anyway go ahead no, it's not okay. So, okay so i read an article you waited until late saturday afternoon to send me the article because ha- you thought i would have a, an inclination to respond yes okay and and it was where keith richards basically let let his feelings be known about bruce springsteen said he likes him he's a nice guy um, but he doesn't understand basically his musical appeal and doesn't really like his songs. And he says four-hour rock shows are pretentious. Right. Who wants to watch you play rock and roll for four hours? I mean, that's what Richard said. He said a good rock and roll show should last 30 minutes, and then he get out of there. <laughs> and, I, I mean, there's some humor in that. Yeah. But it was interesting. He was very complimentary of Springsteen the person, but he says, I just don't get the mass appeal to his music. Um, it's not – I mean, it is rock and roll, but it's rock and roll and a lot of other uh, elements of arrangement involved there and what your, your the response part you liked is when he called him pretentious yeah <laughs> uh, i'm sure you did like okay let me send this to ken real quick mm-hmm. uh, if there's any good news about this show i have to find out from somebody else i mean if we have a good ratings book somebody will come in and say congratulations on the ratings i mean rev never says anything complimentary about what we do it's only he he takes pot shots at me <laughs> Every chance uh, he gets. And I sent that to you, and you said, to each his own. Yeah, I said to each his response. own, and I like both. Right. I do. I, I'm no less yeah. a fan of Keith Richardson. I'm no less a fan of Bruce Springsteen. I'm to each his own. And um, and I like the way he said it. He said, hey, man, I like the guy. I think he's a good guy. I just don't get uh, the appeal or attractiveness of his music. 843-661. And then he called him pretentious. That's kind of a, <laughs> uh, that's kind of a slight. Yeah, Bruce is pretentious. A lot of people believe that. <laughs> 
I mean, a lot of people are beginning to believe right. that he is a uh, kind of a pretentious and um, phony would be a, a, another word. Mm-hmm. Hey, and we've talked about that a lot. We have. Uh, let's go to the phone. Yeah, here's Mike in Darlington. Hello, Mike. Yeah, I think you're right. He's a phony. But uh, that's just me. The, He's an upper percenter, though. You can bet you're behind <laughs> oh, on yeah. that. The, the upper oh, most. <laughs> no doubt about that. No doubt at all. But uh, I, there's been some concerts I've been to. I wish I'd left after 30 minutes. But there <laughs> But those, uh, but uh, I like I liked your list, and I thought that was a great one-page answer to solving just about all of our economic problems in this country. But uh, you left out one critical thing. Okay. Joe kind of touched on it, and that is you got to either ban or have a moratorium or something of the like, an amendment to the Constitution to uh, discontinue, make illegal continuing re- resolutions for the foreseeable future explain that mike i mean why do you think that's so important well because every year they go in there and they say oh we can't do this this is too hard to debate out we can't separate this out we might hurt somebody's feelings or something and all of a sudden we well we'll just do a continuing resolution and uh we'll pay for everything we paid for last year and add a percentage on top yeah, of it yeah and they're not doing the diligent work necessary to put together a budget they're not going through subcommittees and full committees and debating on the floor you know the and actually doing a where you're spending I mean, that's the job of congress i mean congress's job is to appropriate not um not farm out that responsibility to a cr you're right mike well, I think uh, that that's a whole thing. I think they're delinquent in uh, performing their duties as congressmen. I tend that's to agree it. with you. Yeah, thank you for the call. Appreciate it. Um, you know, I want to go back to it because somebody, a couple of people have texted me and made valid points about, you know, the 2% cut. Somebody said, well, both texters said, uh, because you're a former politician and former politicians tend to look at government cuts a little bit differently yeah, than they mean something than else Joe Blow does. to government versus reality. But but when do I cease being a former politician? I mean, I've not been an elected official since 2012. So I got 10 years under my belt. I got 40 years under my belt of not even registering to vote. I've got 10 years under my belt of being out of office. So so I'm more Joe Sixpack than I am. I think once you're in the club and from now on, you are a former politician, right? Well, I mean, I'm a former politician, right. but when do I stop? When do I begin not looking at things through mm-hmm. the lens or, or or view things as a former uh, politician? I spent far more of my life not as a former politician than I have. Well, as seems like you're asking more about former. when is it you're not looked at or judged as a former politician? Yeah. To someone, I guess always, you know, you're a former this yeah. or a former that. Um, because I mean, but because you know, people felt like they had to ask you when you say cut, cut spending, cut this program or whatever. Do you mean in a politician government no, way? I, I mean or in, in a real reality? world way. I mean, absolutely. Let's right. do this. Um, let's cut federal spending. In other words, let's cut. Let's not cut the the the, the continuing resolution of the increase associated with. Um, let's budget. Let's budget. A, let's put together a budget. Let's um let's go through subcommittees and committees. Let's let the um let's let the legislative branch do what it's supposed to do and that is appropriate funds. Um and if our if our budget is four point one trillion dollars, then deduct two percent of that, and that is the amount of money we have to spend this year, and let's vet the budget, let's approve the budget, let's debate the budget, and then two years from now let's cut another two percent. 
in two years from now, let's cut another 2%. We're going to need to cut it about 10 or 12, maybe even 16% to get it to a place of adjustment so we are kind of budget neutral. The amount of money we got coming in equals about the amount of money. And you asked me a second ago, does that include entitlements? Yeah, 2% of welfare programs, 2% of food stamp, 2% of Medicaid. Um, I don't know how we'll deal with Social Security and, and Medicare because our listeners have enlightened me that those aren't entitlement programs, that. that they are by definition, okay, let's exclude Medicare and Social Security, but let's change the model. Let's, let's, let's agree that they're going to be standalone. Medicare and Social Security are going to be um, exclusive or removed from the 2% across the board cut, but we're going to raise the, the eligibility age. We're going to change some of the, um, some of the I don't know, the, the modeling on, on, um, on Medicare. You're eligible for Medicare at, what, 65 now? We're going to change that to 67. You're eligible for Social Security depending on when you were born and what age category you fall in. We're going to change that by two and a half years. That changes the spending curve. That changes the the solvency or not of these government programs that have been funded by you, the employee, and um, someone else who's an employer. Um, so, yeah, we'll, we'll take those out of the basket of across-the-board 2% cuts, and we'll deal with those separately. But we got to deal with them. I mean, we've got to get our government back to a place of fiscal sanity and, and solvency. And the only way to do that, Rev, is to disallow the Fed. Uh, in other words, if the government knew, if the appropriators, if the legislative branch knew that they could not appropriate money they don't have because the Fed is, it, we don't have a Fed. You see where I'm headed? I mean, so, so, so when you issue debt and there's nobody there to buy your debt, then, then how do you deficit spend? You can't. I mean, you operate in the real world. The Fed has allowed the government to live in dreamland, dream world. We do it because we want to do it. There's this voting constituency. There's that voting constituency. Well, the people in California need this. The people in South Carolina need that. And no becomes um, just, I mean, there is nobody saying no anymore. Nobody says no to anything. So we appropriate this money that we don't have. We go to the Fed. And the Fed says, we'll buy that debt. We don't have any money, but you have given us, or 1913, where we're granted the authority to print money out of thin air. So that's what we'll do to buy the debt uh, because you've spent money you don't have. What if the government didn't have the Fed as their crutch? And, and I guess that's, you know, I'm thinking about this um, first and foremost, because I think this is doable. And I think you could get enough consensus in Washington to be energy independent. And I'm like Joe. I said it and Joe said it. I'm not talking about exclusive to fossil fuels or nuclear, or hydrogen, or, or electric, or, or solar, or wind, all of the above. Everything. Yes to everything. We're going to have the most, uh, here I go with a uh, government phrase, you ready? We're going to have the most comprehensive energy plan in all of America. Um, but we sincerely mean that. But aside of the energy plan, because once again, we can do that. I mean, there is no doubt. We can achieve energy independence um, without a lot of complication. Now, it's going to take some private sector investment, but let's encourage some of the private, let's incentivize some of the private sector investment because it is a matter of national security. The second thing I would probably do is cut federal spending by 2% annually, not cut the increases, but cut spending. What is our baseline budget? Cut that by 2%. In two years, we're going to cut it by two more, which will be four. In two more years, we're at six. So, um, so in eight years, we're at 8% spending cuts. We didn't choke the life out of government. 
We didn't make every department head or agency department head go to their employees and say, you can't, you're not going to believe this, but they made draconian 8% cuts to our budget this year. But you know it's coming. And over the course of four years, we get 8% across the board spending cuts. Is that the perfect way to do it? No, because some government agencies are more bloated. They're less efficient. Um, there's probably one or two agencies out there doing a decent job. I don't think anybody's doing a good job, but there's somebody out there probably in a government agency doing a decent enough job. They have some um, uh, some street cred. It matters to them that they're spending your tax dollars. The majority don't. And we know that to be true because, once again, um, the U.S. school districts in America today have 93% of the $122 billion that they got with the American Rescue Plan. $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan, school districts in the country got $122 billion. They don't look at that as billion. You know what that is, Rev? That's $122,000 million. I mean, that's the way to look at that because billions get a little bit. Uh, a billion, man, I can't comprehend a billion bucks. Certainly not a trillion, but $122,000 billion, 93% has not been spent. So why not give the money back? Because nobody's keeping tabs. Nobody's keeping an accounting. The Department of Education compiled this report. I mean, they're kind of self-reporting where the money is. It's sitting in the bank accounts, I guess, of school districts all over the country to the tune of $122 million, uh, excuse me, $122,000 million. So they're not going to self-correct. you got to force this upon them. And, and, and the last thing that I would probably do is abolish the Fed. I mean, do away with the Federal Reserve. Uh, wow, Ken. That's real radical. Is, is, is abolishing the Federal Reserve more or less radical than allowing a government to spend money it doesn't have, going to some quasi-government agency, and they buy the debt with money they don't have, but they have the ability to print that money out of thin air? What is more radical, to do away with that um, element within government or to continue allowing that element to do what it is um, that has led to all this enormous inflation. And, and it's interesting we're having this conversation now because we've been doing this for about 10 years. I mean, we've really uh, periodically talked a lot about the, 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 the rampant inflation and the miscalculating of the government as it relates to that inflation because it makes their life a lot more complicated if they honestly have to account for inflation. 843-661-0937. Let's go to the phone. Here's Bert in Florence. Hey, Bert. I love when you start singing my song. I have said for years that we should cut it by 20% and fix this in five years. But I would be really happy, and you know, you should run for president with that song you're doing today. I would be really happy if they would just stop any money that's leaving the country because every year that that continuing thing is supporting like oh let's do um you know gay film festival in zimbabwe or something you know it's ridiculous how much money leaves this country that has no value to us whatsoever we're not getting anything for it we're just making some lobbyist happy you know you are can when when someone's an alcoholic they are forever, the rest of their life, they call themselves a recovering alcoholic. So you're a recovering politician. <laughs> and maybe if you keep talking like this, 
maybe you shouldn't be recovering. You should fall off the wagon and get back in there. No, I'm thinking you up there. (laughs) Thank you, Bert. If I knew you would have those thousand gods on my team, I would have probably considered. I'll talk to each and every one of them. (laughs) Thank you, Bert. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. Yeah, I am a permanently former politician, a, uh, a a former politician permanently. I'll say it that way. 843-661-0937. Before we take our break, Mike, we're not too far behind, are we? Okay, before we take our break, um, it appears to me, we've not even touched on this this morning, it appears to me that they've counted about all the votes in Pennsylvania. Now, they say they have it, but it appears to me, when I sat down this morning, Dr. Oz, I'm still laughing, I said, Dr. (laughs) Oz is leading the Republican primary in Pennsylvania for 16,783 uh, McCormick for 15,543. That's 1,240 votes. Yesterday, that number was 2,672. So he's cut into the lead from 2,672 to 1,240. But but during the show this morning, Oz's number has changed from 416,783 to 416,785, an increase of two votes. McCormick, four, uh, 415,543 to 415,544. So they've counted three votes in three hours. That leads me to believe, guys, that we're almost at the finish line and Dr. Oz is going to go into the automatic recount up about 1,240 votes. It may change a little bit from there, but um, but Dr. Oz is now, I predict, the odds-on favorite to be the Republican nominee in the, Repu- in the Senate primary in... Um, and I still can't believe I'm saying this. Dr. Oz is going to be our nominee in a swing state like Pennsylvania. So, um, you know, whether we've ever watched his show or not, whether we have any idea what it is he's done to keep uh, his relevant personality on the airways for 18 years, I don't have a clue. I've never watched the guy give one second of advice, but he's our guy now. I mean, he's a Republican in Pennsylvania, and it looks to me like, unless something crazy happens, that he's going to be the guy taking on the Democrat and um, in one of the most crucial Senate races in all of America. Take a break. Back in just a minute. 843-661-0937. Mike Nunn, Florence County Sheriff's Office, is with us this morning. Mike, good morning. How are you? Good morning, guys. So I'm going to drag you in a very complicated direction. I'm going to try to – I'll have to do it kicking, screaming, because Mike's got a, um, a responsibility to be – uh, I said earlier, Reggie can't give careless and, and crazy opinions. I can't. i got to get paid to give crazy and uh, provocative opinions. Mike's got uh, an obligation, responsibility to the Sheriff's Department to, to, to be factual, to be accurate about what he says over the over the airwaves. But but I, I want to go down the road of, and we're talking about mass shootings, and uh, the, the media will convince some people, not me, but some, that this is an epidemic. I mean, we're having mass shootings every day. You and I were talking during the break. Mass shootings are very, very rare. Um, they don't happen a lot, but simply because they don't happen a lot doesn't mean law enforcement doesn't have to consider and have contingency plans on if and when these sorts of things happen. Is that a fair characterization? Sure it is. Well, the FBI uh, defines a mass shooting as where four or more individuals are involved. So, you know, it, that that definition takes in a fair, fair number of um, things that are not on the same scale as what we saw in Buffalo and we've seen in other places. So, uh, by definition, yeah, they're probably able to put up a number. Um, quite frankly, it's shocking that there's one, much less uh, any other. But, um, you know, from a definitional standpoint, 
um, a lot of things fit into mass shootings that we wouldn't necessarily consider to be that. Mine, you said a second ago that we don't have anything in common with these people. I mean, the, the, there's a common denominator, and, and, you know, there's no question this person in Buffalo w- was a racist. I mean, they, they were racially motivated um, in, in the church in Charleston. I mean, there, there was a racial, um, uh, but a lot of this is mental illness. I mean, a lot of this is something has happened in this person's life that led them down the road of being instable or unstable when it comes to um, to how to process things. And do, do, does law enforcement delve into that at all? I mean, do we do we know do we have people in our communities that we're suspicious of because Facebook posts or Twitter accounts uh, at the debate? We found out that there were two people in the audience that were on the radar. You know, that the, they, they had said some things or conducted themselves in a certain fashion that law enforcement had to consider them somewhat threatening. Is that is that a part of the data gathering that you guys do? Well, local law enforcement has a tough time uh, looking over the vast Internet uh, social media postings to see if anyone is posted or said something that looks threatening. Now, SLED, the Fusion Center in SLED, does keep track of... Um, certain uh things with regard to threat assessment if, if when we have a, a a politician or a dignitary come to town and we're asked to provide uh executive protection things we we do a a um a threat assessment we want to know okay who's who's made threats against this individual and what's the form of the threat how recent were they how credible were they so you know we can uh, do that on a kind of an individual basis um but SLED does, through their Fusion Center, um, monitor and keep track of certain postings on social media, hopefully to identify individuals that uh, or have at least expressed some type of um, desire. Um, but you're never going to get them all. You're just not. And, um, you know, unfortunately, um, law enforcement winds up responding to these events after they begin. And so uh, they're crimes of opportunity. They're difficult to predict uh and they're certainly difficult to stop a lot of our listeners believe that their liberties and freedoms have been infringed upon more than they're comfortable with as we speak but when we think of our neighbor or or someone in our world that we see something change about their attitudes um, i'm talking about mental illness here for a second we notice that something has happened to them and they're not who they formerly were and they may or may not act out some of these uh intuitions they have um once again um we celebrate liberties and freedoms but they're always bumping into this obligation we have to society in general how can the public help you guys do your job in addressing um proactively um something that could eventually be tragic well obviously the see something say something uh uh quote applies here um Look, we uh, we understand that uh, liberty is an important thing, and uh, you know, until someone commits a crime, you know, even after we charge them, they're still presumed innocent until proven guilty. So, uh, you know, ahead of time, it's really uh, difficult without stepping on someone's uh, freedom and liberties to uh, to to make a determination. But there are. Um, um, actually, South Carolina has had for some time uh, what some would call a red flag law, uh, which allows an individual or even law enforcement 
if they perceive an individual to be a uh, serious threat, to file a petition and go to court to get an order um, dispossessing that individual from firearms uh, or other means of, um, of, uh, of harm. So um, it, it's rarely, if ever, used. Most people don't know we have it. It's been here for quite some time. And, and when this uh, notion got popular after Sandy Hook, um, there were all these cries, well, South Carolina needs a red flag. Like, well, guess what? We already have it. And uh, so uh, fortunately, it's used uh, very rarely. Uh, I'm actually unaware of, uh, of anything other than maybe one instance uh, across the state where it's uh, been used. There probably only a handful of people know we have it because it's tucked into a, uh, a statute that's not particularly uh, uh, searched often. But, uh, but it's there if, uh, if that comes about. You know, and I guess if you have a family member that you notice some, you know, some concerning changes in their attitudes or their thinking process or, um, you know, uh, maybe trying to get those folks help. Uh, that's, uh, to me, that's one of the best things we can do is try to get them help. But isn't that kind of the consistent theme when we, when we, when we um, reactively deal with a situation like the the store in the, the grocery store in buffalo or the uh w- there's always an element of of something happened to that person um the, the concern i would have mike is and this is why i go down the road of the personal or the community involvement um that there's always somebody that says after the fact i noticed he had gotten kind of off kilter i noticed something had happened in his world i mean he was building a bunker in his backyard and he was buying you know every piece of ammo he could buy I mean, we do have, I think, and I don't think we're offending people's liberties and freedoms when we report those sorts of things to law enforcement. I think we potentially say these are rare things. They don't hardly ever happen. Uh, Despite what CNN says, what MSNBC tries to say, there's not one political party hunting for the other political party. But that's kind of the narrative today. And Chuck Schumer said some pretty disgusting things as far as I'm concerned when he basically labeled every Republican a racist who condones this sort of nonsense. I mean, nobody condones that. The, the point I'm getting to is, yeah, socioeconomics are a part, race is a part, but mental illness and raising awareness to that person who appears to be, uh, I mean, the word you use is concerning, alarming, um, something has happened there. Um, I just think we have a responsibility to law enforcement and to our communities to, to speak openly and proactively about those situations. Sure. And, um, you know, the problem is, what do you do with that information? You know, at that point, what do you do with it? it? Well, I'm asking you that. So what is law? If Ken Ard calls Mike Nunn because we're friends and I say, Mike, man, I don't want to do this because I'm, I'm the biggest liberty loving Jeffersonian you'll ever encounter in your life. But there's this guy on my street that has changed. Something's happened to him. I, I I think I have legitimacy with Mike. So when I tell Mike that Mike says Ken's not some lunatic, plays one on the radio, but I don't think he's some lunatic, um, we may need to check in to what's happened to his two-door-down neighbor. He's gotten divorced. He's had something happen in his life, and all of a sudden he's expressing um, a different sort of um, demeanor. What do you guys do with that? Well, it's, it's tough because there's really no crime having been committed at this point. You know, is and, and you look at someone and, and say, well, you know, is this the ex-wife or the separated spouse really kind of out in this guy? Is he, uh, she trying to get an advantage or, or neighbors having some dispute over the fence and he's trying to sick the police on this guy? 
And really, you know, until there's a um, either a judicial order from the probate court or we have something more concrete, uh, you know, that's that's not a law enforcement issue at that point. And, you know, the um, the federal uh, statute that prohibits individuals from possessing firearms if they're mentally ill requires an adjudication of mental illness, not just a um, I'm I'm sending him for evaluation or you know, I spent a couple of days uh, in in the in the uh, mental facility because I was depressed, and I'm out, and I'm fine. That you must be in order to be prohibited under federal law from possessing a firearm or purchasing a firearm. There has to be an adjudication of mental illness by by a court. That's tough. It really is. And we're always bumping in our personal liberties and freedoms. Um, we believe that shootings are random. We think they happen every day. We watch Fox. We watch CNN. You said something a second ago. Um, the overwhelming majority of um, homicides or gun violence are perpetrated by people who you know and are in your familiar orbit. Yeah, very few uh, people are killed by strangers. Um, they usually are um, uh, uh, salted, shot, killed by someone they know. They've either been in some transaction, some relationship, um, they've had some prior encounter, um, and it's not to say that stranger killings don't occur. They do, but they are by far the, uh, exception to the rule. Last question. If someone were to, uh, a horrific act happens in a grocery store in our community, is the sheriff department trained and prepared for something that is highly unlikely to happen, but could we train all the time? not just in our schools uh, to have uh, school protocols with school resource officers, but our um, specialized units, our SWAT teams train for these types of things, uh, hoping and praying every day we never have to utilize that training. But, uh, you know, to the public, if you find yourself in one of these uh, horrific situations, the standard advice, which is put out by the Department of Homeland Security, and there's some really good videos on this if you want to take a look, is run, hide, fight. If you can run away from the danger, run. If you can hide, if you can't run, but you can hide, hide. If you can't run and you can't hide, you have to fight. And that's with whatever is at your disposal, whatever you can get your hands on. Um, there, there are no style points. There are no gentleman's rules when it comes to this. This is, uh, this is survival. You fight to live. Well explained. Thank you, Mike. Great. You guys have a great day. Do the same. We'll take a break. Yeah, that's a wonderful subject to discuss for six or seven or eight minutes, but it's real. It's very mm-hmm. relevant in our lives in front of mine as we um as we sit here. Un- unfortunate. Yeah, no, no question about it. Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one oh nine three seven. Special guest today, Rip. Looky here. Yeah, yeah. Sonny Collins is with us from the South Carolina Highway Patrol. He's got kind of outgrown Wake Up Carolina. Um <laughs> has gone to bigger and better things, but uh he is, um, he's kind of got in touch with his roots this morning. So, Sonny, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Welcome. Well, I, I you know, I, I listen. Easy I still now. listen. Okay, and we appreciate and, that. And, yeah. and, Thank you. And when I can tell you starting to waver, you get a little out of control, I say, well, it's time to go back. Oh, okay. back okay. Get him back down. <laughs> and now, we're, so, so he, we've got out of control, mm, so he's here to bring right. us back. So, I like going to the beach. Yes, sir. Um, but I got to share the beach this weekend with yep. bikers. Yeah. Motorcycles will be everywhere, not just at the beach. They don't transform themselves at the beach. They got to drive from there. to So they'll be coming through our communities. Uh, what do we need to be paying attention to? Yeah, I think that's something we forget. We look at uh, Bike Week and say, oh, that's a Myrtle Beach problem. But it's not. It's a, it's a South Carolina issue. 
because uh, they'll be coming right through Florence. Really starting today, we'll start to see the big influx. This weekend is the big weekend for the Harley Rally. So uh, they're going to be coming in all directions, 378, 76, the interstate. They're all going to kind of come through Florence and then on their way to the beach. And uh, we don't really don't have a break. We're going to flip it right around. Uh, you, you'll probably start seeing next Tuesday, the Memorial Day bike crowd will start coming down. So it's back-to-back this year. Sometimes we have a little break. But uh, it's back-to-back, so uh, Florence is going to see a huge influx of motorcycles. So so it's not just the motorcycle riders and drivers' responsibility. It's our responsibility to be aware. That's kind yeah. of a different animal on the road. It, it is. In, in May is Motorcycle Awareness Month. Last year, we had a record number of fatalities involving motorcycles. Um, you know, And I think you've probably seen it going back and forth. Well, we've all seen it driving around. This warm weather's come out, and these motorcycles are out. Mm-hmm. And we have to be careful. That motorcycle, you got that single headlight coming at you. It is extremely hard to judge the speed on a motorcycle. So uh, we just ask our drivers, hey, before you pull out, before you make that left turn, give it a second look. Make sure you understand where that motorcyclist is at. And, of course, for our motorcycle riders, you can help yourself uh, wear your protective gear and drive responsibly. Do they tend to sunny? I mean, in other words, when someone goes through the training and, and, you know, licensing to be able to operate a motorcycle, is it fairly stringent? It, it is, but what we found years ago, and I say years ago, it's, it's been about 10 or 12 years ago, we did a big motorcycle study to find out exactly who's, who's wrecking, who's, who's in crashes. And it was, it was guys on these bigger cruising bikes, but what we found was a lot of them didn't have training. A lot of them didn't have even a license, or, or they had a license, but it was that beginner's permit that they had just been kind of re-upping every year, every year. And they've gone in and made some legislative changes where you can't do that anymore. You do eventually have to go take the road test for a motorcycle. So um, we hope that'll help. help Sonny, are mopeds dangerous? I mean, I've never understood the logic. So someone doesn't show the discipline to maintain a a license to run a car or a truck, a motor vehicle. All of a sudden, we let them drive a plastic bicycle with a motor on it that'll run, you know, 25 or 30. Explain the logic in that for me. Mopeds. What are you laughing about, Rip? <laughs> Your description is. I, I do get a lot of complaints. It's a mopeds, plastic bicycle with a motor on it. But <laughs> mopeds, no, are not dangerous, but they put themselves in dangerous situations. Correct. Uh, because you got a moped going, like you said, 25 miles an hour. The speed limit is 55 miles an hour. You're coming down the road. The closure rate is so high, especially in early morning, late afternoon, and night. You see that single uh, headlight up ahead of you. I'm thinking that's a motorcycle. Sure. You don't realize you are closing in fast. So they have adjusted the laws. You know, if you're on you're on a moped, you can't be on a road where the speed limit's higher than 55. Like, you know, Highway 52, 60 miles an hour in some areas. So uh, they have adjusted that a little bit to try to help with that. But, you know, motor, moped riders, they do have a right to the, to the road. And we as drivers have got to be extremely careful. We understand they're out there. Or bikers. Do bikers seem to? I mean, I'm talking about motorcycles. I'm talking about mm-hmm. bicyclists. The, mm-hmm. the cyclists who... You'll see them in their in their cute uniforms on Saturday morning. Yeah, you know, driving a hundred miles, training for the Tour de France. Um, I mean, they they tend to be respectful and and appreciative of the road rules of the road. They they do, and bicyclists can be out there as well. They just have to ride to the far as right as possible. They should be going with traffic. Just remember, anything with wheels, you need to be going with traffic. If you're walking, you really need to be facing against traffic. But um. What about a, a group of bicycles and they're like three wide in the lane and it makes it really difficult to to get around? Yeah, the they can ride double file, but they but they need to be far to the right as possible is what the law st- says. But but us as drivers, it really falls back on us not to be looking at our phone and looking at the radio and everything else to, to keep that focus on the road so we can we can see that. But we do have a lot of, of mopeds out, and we do have a we lot do. of bicyclists out. 
Well, well the, the, the motorcycle is not as bothersome because yeah. Sonny said it. They're going about as fast as mm-hmm. we are. Mm-hmm. So, so the um, the closing speed and the and the speed at which you you know kind of I mean running up on the back of a tractor in the country yeah. was something you had to be careful about. People go to the city. You know, go to the country like, I didn't see that tractor. I didn't realize he was going so slow. That's a tractor, true. dude. It's on the road. Of course it's going slow. But, I mean, these are things we've got to be aware of. And moped, mopeds will be the problems there because bicyclists, you see those bicyclists out on Saturday morning, those guys are avid bicyclists. They know what they're doing. These mopeds, typically it's going to be someone who has lost their driver's license for an alcohol violation, and they, they still do have their moped privileges. The, the plastic bicycle with a motor on it, that's the – Rev, that's the answer. I mean, if you lose your license because you've not demonstrated the, the competency to, to maintain a motor vehicle, then you're allowed to drive a plastic bicycle <laughs> with a motor on it. But, hey, as the summer starts, <laughs> let's just be careful because uh, we've got lots of people heading to the beach. No question about season. it. This weekend, moving forward, I mean, it'll be about like this until Labor Day. Yeah, it pretty much. this pretty much kicks it off for the beach. I know Memorial Day is the official, but this, this weekend pretty much kicks it off. Thank you, my man. Yeah, man. Good, Good to see you, guys. We'll take a break. We'll be back in a minute. So now's about the time we'd say one of the most underrated rock bands in the history of mankind, right? There you go. We always. Always say it. Have to say it. Yeah. It's almost required well, I mean, it's, it's It's part of the show now. That's right. When we play Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, it's always followed by uh, the commentary, the brief commentary by the Royal Rev and yours truly, mm-hmm. that they are indeed. So you're an old hand at radio. Yeah. Are they indeed one of the most underrated rock and roll bands ever? I think so. No question about I it. I think so. I, you know how I know this? Because my wife is not a music enthusiast. I mean, she likes music, but she is not like I am. She doesn't want to delve into it. Wonder what Springsteen meant when he said that. Wonder if he robbed that from Dylan. Wonder, right. wonder what um, wonder what the Stones meant when they, you know, uh, the Beatles. And she's like, no, screw that. I don't want to know anything about all that. I just want to pat my foot and sing along. Yep. that's kind of what I want to do. So, um, so I'm playing Tom Petty. We're driving to the beach one day, and I'm playing Petty, and then another Tom Petty. And she all of a sudden says, after like four songs, she says, all of those songs were Tom Petty. And I said, yeah. And she's like, wow. And that's a raging endorsement from her. You know, like, wow, I didn't know all those songs were Tom Petty. Uh, that leads me to believe that he is indeed, you know, one of the most yeah. underrated rock and roll bands. He had more um, hits that ever. you know and like than you probably even realize. Now, now, Keith Richards, I'm sure, would think he's pretentious. And um, <laughs> No, I think I think Keith Richards <laughs> likes the good ones. <laughs> the good ones. Okay. Are, Fair yeah. enough. He tomorrow, lets us know what he thinks about just think of this. Just think of this. Tomorrow is another what? Springsteen Friday here on Wake Up Carolina. The pretentious Bruce Springsteen <laughs> will um, guest appear, whether he wants to or not, on this conservative radio. See, I would suggest that every conservative radio show in America adopt the Springsteen on Friday just to piss just him to off. Make him yeah, just to oh, make yeah. him mad and frustrated because uh, Ronald Reagan played born in the usa and bruce got all upset about yeah, cease you know, and you know, you know, reagan sure. just cease and desist letters and and all this but we have agreed <laughs> despite um our varying degrees of affection for his music we have agreed that he's an upper percenter right i well, mean sony no, no. we've always we've always suspected that he was an upper percenter but when he sold to sony we're, we're pretty sure now that 545 million dollars puts you in uh the upper percenter. Something right? popped up in front of me. Said his net worth now six fifty. I think. Wow. See, I, is that it was something that obviously now that he sold his collection. Well, I mean, that's probably all he's worth, right? The collection. I mean, if you have the collection, well, but he's collected you know performance money over the years and royalties and well, investments of who knows what. No, I would imagine you know, and and what do we know or what don't we know? How many trusts or how many you know uh, charitable? I mean, I don't have any idea how those people do that with their money. I mean, I don't. I don't honestly don't have any clue. 
uh, what somebody would do with a billion bucks. I mean, if Paul McCartney has a billion dollars or his, his assets are worth a billion dollars, what does he do? How much money does he keep in his checking account? Right. You know, how much money of, um, I mean, does he meet with a Reggie Armstrong and says, hey, take this 50 million and don't lose it, you know, and another 100 million. And does he set up trust for his family? I, I don't have any yeah, idea. Uh, I don't know anything about that. You world. know, I've heard, I've heard the conversation. Uh, I'm a big sports fan, football in particular. And, and about every year you hear a story of a coach has that meeting, quote unquote, with that player about, you know, you, son, you've got a chance. The good Lord has given you a talent and you have a chance to take that talent and, and have generational wealth. You change the lives of everybody you love, your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, if you choose to. It's your talent. It's your call. Um, but the NFL draft is next year. The combines are later this year. You'll either work hard and become the best player you can be or you won't. If you don't, then you probably miss out on the opportunity at generational wealth and changing, you know, the people in your lives or people in your life lives forever or you won't. And it's always interesting to see who responds and who does not respond. Um, the streets full of five-star has-beens and those who just didn't decide, you know, I want to do this that bad. But, but to me, I mean, you can say I want to be the best defensive tackle in the history of football. But but the, the reason you want to do that is because you want to, you know, change your family's fate and future forever financially and create some independence and security and all those other things that go along with that. Hey, we, we talk a lot about the swamp here. Um, I looked a second ago. The numbers have not changed. I'm declaring. I'm going to do what Trump did. Uh, Trump said that Dr. Oz should declare victory. That way it would make it harder for them to cheat him. Uh, <laughs> such an eloquent and reverent way the former president uh, puts things, but we understand exactly what he means. Uh, he said yesterday that Dr. Oz should declare victory. That way it'll be harder to cheat, you know, once they start um, counting votes. Well, I believe, uh, once again, when I sat down this morning, uh, let's go back to yesterday. Uh, remember yesterday we said there's still some votes outstanding. Yep. Um, Oz had 411,674 votes at the beginning of yesterday's show. That 674 turned into 878. Um, McCormick's 409002 turned into 409308. So we had hundreds of votes coming in yesterday during the show. A couple of hundred here, a couple of hundred there. Um, Oz was up at the conclusion of yesterday's show, 2,564 votes. But once again, there were several hundred votes coming in while we were on the air. Today's different. Today we began the show. Uh, Oz had 416,783. Now he's at 785. Those have been... Two additional votes cast. Um, McCormick had 400, yeah, 415, 543. Now he has 544. So there's been hundreds of votes counted yesterday during the show. There's only been a total of three added to the tally. That leads me to believe that they're cleaning up the voting room and find a ballot under a box somewhere, you know, one or two or three. Well, why I, wouldn't they declare at this well, point? But I, I think there's some military ballots. If I'm not mistaken, there's still some military, or they believe there's some military ballots outstanding. Uh, but I just when, when I look at his lead, his lead is only 1,240 uh, points. It's one tenth of one percent. I mean, that's what it is today. Somewhere between one and two tenths of one percent. So there'll be an automatic recount. I mean, it, you know, it, it'll trigger an automatic. I mean, it won't be a debate. It won't be a, a litigation. I mean, they will decide. Yeah, we got to go and do a. Uh, recount um 75 percent of the recounts in with a winning candidate getting more votes uh it usually whatever the gap is so the gap's 1240 today let's say the gap ends up at a thousand votes oz beats mccormick by a thousand votes 
there's about a 75% chance that when the recount is done, he ends up with more than a thousand vote lead. You know, that's, I mean, there's no loser in that. I mean, when you have over a million votes cast, well over a million, when you take Barnett and some of the other candidates, you got about 1.3 million votes cast, maybe as high as 1.4 million votes cast, and only a thousand votes decide a statewide election in Pennsylvania. That's a, that's a hotly contested race to say the least, but it seems to me that, um, that Oz, no, let's just say this. We're going to declare, I mean, the AP hadn't done it, Fox hadn't done it, but we're going to declare Dr. Oz the winner in Pennsylvania, and he'll face um tall guy wearing the hoodie with tattoos. Uh, Fetterman, I think is his name, and now has a pacemaker. So um, an interesting resume for a political candidate. You know, tall guy, wears a hoodie, has tattoos up one side and down the other. I mean, it's just not your quintessential politician. I mean, it's not the kind of guy that most people are accustomed to voting but for. He's, he's a big Bernie guy. Well, I mean, right? but, but yeah, a very liberal guy. But, he, but I'll tell you what he did, and, and this, is, this is a bit interesting. He convinced the voters of Pennsylvania that he is who he says he is. He's authentic. And I'm telling you guys, there's a lot of traits and characteristics that are rewarded in, uh, in politics today. Nothing more than authenticity. Trump is an authentic guy. He may be an ass. He may be a blowhard. He may be narcissistic. He may be bombastic. Um, but he appears to be um, whatever is on his mind comes out of his mouth. And I think people are beginning to really, really appreciate someone who says um, what they believe. <laughs> it sounds a lot like you just described Donald Trump. Well, exactly. <laughs> I mean, no question about it. Um, That's funny. But that's why Trump was rewarded, right? Because he came across as authentic. He's thinly veiled. I mean, he's a, he's a guy that gets his feelings hurt about everything, and uh, I don't know, man. A lot of people believe he has this insecurity complex that you know leads into kind of down the road of narcissism. I don't have any idea. I'm not psychological enough to understand all of that. But but he does appear to be. I mean, when he says things off the cuff, it appears to be authentic. You know, Rocket Man. I mean, who would call the leader of another nation Rocket Man? But how many of us subconsciously say those things? Uh, a little short guy with the rockets. I mean, that, that's, you know, that's who he is. Okay, I get it now. He's got this Napoleon complex. Short guy with the rockets, nuclear weapons. He wants to have more than anybody. Well, Trump just says out loud uh, what we believe. I want to shift gears because so we, we've, we've um, I want to go down my rundown sheet here. We've, um, we've declared Oz the winner in Pennsylvania. Okay. Um, and if he doesn't, it's not our fault. Right. Um, I've got another line here. Number two, they've abandoned any sense of decency. I mean, the Democrats have, I mean, that's where we are, guys. It's MAGA. I mean, it's on. And if we're not willing to get our knuckles bloodied and our, you know, fingernails dirty and, you know, get in the muck and mud of the, I don't know, the uh, the establishment world, then we're going to lose. Because the, the Democrats now are going to do anything within their power to maintain control of government. They can't do it on their agenda. They can't do it with their ideas. They suck. They don't work. It's being proven as we speak. You got gas. You know, heading toward 450 a gallon. You've got baby formula shortages. You got a lot of just, I mean, incompetence within. And you call it intentional. We've had this debate about when intentionality bumps in incompetence, and it's both. Let's say it's intentional on energy. Uh, a lot of these other things are just to me demonstrations of rank incompetence. But but they can't win elections arguing that their ideas are better. So they're going to try to marginalize the opponent. I mean, they're going to call you a racist. They're going to call you transphobic and homophobic, and and you're the reason that um the innocent people died in the uh, the grocery store in Buffalo. You're the reason 
that, that a woman can't choose what you know what to do with her own body and health care and all these other elements. That's that's their strategy moving forward. They believe they have found something that gives them a better chance. I didn't say they're going to win, but they believe that they found something that gives them a better chance, and that is the phrase MAGA. You're going to hear that over and over and over again. It's been focus group tested. It's been poll tested. Um, it's the best hand they can play is try to convince independents that that MAGA crowd is still extreme. That MAGA crowd has a rabid intensity that is dangerous in the public forum. Uh, the public square can't be dominated by this MAGA crowd. Um, we need to refer to ourselves as America firsters. We want policy that advantages and empowers the American working class. But but the Democrats have already abandoned any sense of decency they've ever had. There was a day in America when there was a degree of civility and decency in politics. Um, the media has tried to blame the extreme MAGA crowd and the MAGA rallies and this Trumpism and Trump phenomenon. That There's nothing extreme about the Trump crowd, period. I mean, they're, they're a bit... Um, Johnny come lately. They're, they're a bit new. I would argue, Rev, they're a bit ragtag. I don't say that in an insulting way, that they are a little bit um, uh, politically misfitted. They don't really know where to land. That They've looked for a while and had not found a place they're, they're comfortable. All of a sudden, they find a place that um, kind of suits them well. Um, they're going to be targeted, and they're going to be targeted by a, a machine that, that is all about winning. And you can look, uh, Dan Bongino says this a lot, and I'll agree with him. Um, You can argue that the Democrats' ideas are insane and absurd and are very, very dangerous to America's future. Don't you ever for a second believe that they're not committed to it and they're committed enough to do whatever it takes to win. That is what they're committed to. You need to remember this, guys. The Democrats may have bad ideas, but they are as committed to those bad ideas as they've ever been, and they are... um, going to do anything within their power to win. So let's let's kind of catch on to that and, and just hold that true to our hearts. We're, we're not dealing with people who are um, somewhat committed, you know, lukewarm committed, kind of sort of believe in this. No, it's an extreme element within that party that I think is dangerous to America's future, but they're going to do everything they can. Lie, cheat, steal, doesn't matter. They've abandoned any principles of decency, of ethics, or morals. They want to win. Remember that. They want to win. I would say this, Reb. They want to win worse than we do. Mm. They, they have a, well, I mean, you know, we, we kind of sort of, and this is where the, I don't know, the, the intensity the imbalance takes place. We kind of sort of don't want government to do much. So if we kind of sort of don't want government to do much. How do we match the intensity for those who want government to do everything? Government levels the playing field. Government addresses all the socioeconomic ills of the world. Government uh, provides health care. Government provides some retirement. Government provides, you know, food and subsidence for, for people who don't have it. Uh, those people are naturally going to want to be in charge of government. And if we're a little bit, you know, more dismissive, I don't know, man, I kind of want government to do a little bit. You know, I don't want government to do much at all. How do you match that intensity? And, and that's always been what I call the intensity imbalance. I mean, it's not some uh, political formula or political theory. It's something I've kind of coined and, and what I notice in my political dealings. But that's kind of sort of uh, where we are. 
0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Here's Jim in Florence. Good morning, Jim. Hey, good morning, guys. Rest assured, Ken, that there's more of us than there are of them. Um, and, and I think the 2020 shows that. I mean, we went from – our Trump went from what about – Did we lose Jim? Yeah, we lost you for a second. Continue. We hear you now, but we lost you for about three or four seconds. I, rest assured, there's more of us than them. I mean, look at the increase that Trump saw. What, uh, what, 15 million votes? 12 million votes? I mean, an unprecedented number. Um, but, but Ken, as I, as I think about what, what do I identify as, what is my ideology when it comes to politics, I'm almost by, repulsed by the word conservative anymore. I am, too. Um, I am, too, Jim. I'm on, I, I, I don't want to vote for a conservative Republican. Um, because to me, that, that means two things. That means, one, he's a do-nothing guy. And two, that means I'm just voting for a Democrat. Uh, you know, all the conservative Republicans look to do is say, hey, how can the Democrats hand us the next election? And two, let's hope and pray the Supreme Court overturns everything the Democrats do instead of us doing anything. We look at abortion. So it looks like we're going to receive a ruling that, is in our favor. It's not what we necessarily want to the nth degree, but it's in our favor. Okay, well, what are you going to do next? What What is the Republican Party going to do for children next? We keep giving the Democrats this argument. Oh, well, you don't care about children after they're after they're born. You want them born, but you don't want to do anything. Let's do something. Let's finally do something on schools. Let's finally do something for working parents. Let's finally empower the nuclear family. Let's finally empower parents to be able to say, hey, you know what? Uh, mom or dad, mom's got a good job. Hey, let's empower that family so dad can stay home with the kids or vice versa. Why are we not doing this? They're doing nothing. Thank you, Kim. Thank you, Jim. So is Jim arguing that the Republicans should abandon any sense of decency? I mean, isn't that kind of what, I mean, mm-hmm. decency is not the right word. Any, uh, any, okay, let's Stop do this. Stop playing nice. The, the abandon, okay, we're going to abandon any sense of principle. How about that? I mean, we're, we're going to agree that, you know, the, the battle for the heart and soul of America, the political parties are part of that. I mean, Jim agrees with that. You know, he doesn't want to vote for conservative Republican. Well, I mean, he's kind of indirectly admitting that the heart and soul of America is in some way, shape, or form defined or defined by, by the two political parties. Uh, which political party is in control of the country? Um, and, and he's right. I mean, on, on, on Roe v. Wade, we're going to get a, a bit of a, uh, a win, but it's not exactly what the conservative movement wanted. Um, but I want to go back to what Jim said about conservative Republicans, because I try not to use that word. I mean, it, you know, it, 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 it kind of comes out of my mouth because it, I don't know, I'm not a traditionalist by any stretch, but, you know, when you run for office, you got to convince people in the Republican Party you're a conservative Republican. So it's almost my default position. You know, when someone says, who are you, Ken, when you were involved, I was a conservative Republican. I mean, of course I was. I'm a conservative Republican in South Carolina. You're not conservative we are in South Carolina. We're a very conservative state. You know, the 7th Congressional District, very conservative in Nate. What does that mean? I think we've got to redefine conservatism or we've got to adopt a new word. I was thinking about this yesterday. If the Republican Party were a company, a corporation, and I could appoint three board members, in other words, we got a nine-member board. I don't get to point them all because I'm not the owner of the company, but I'm a large enough shareholder of the company that is the Republican Party. What three shareholders do I put on the board? And I came up with three. Donald Trump, mm-hmm. Peter Thiel, and okay. Tucker Carlson. Th- those really? are my three. Yeah, I mean, if, if I 
uh, maybe you guys disagree with me, yeah. but, but if we have a nine-member board of directors and the Republican Party, forget conservative America, forget liberal America for a second, but if the Republican Party were a corporation and I owned enough stock in that party to designate three board members, my board members would be, in no particular order, Donald Trump, Peter Thiel, and Tucker Carlson. Those would be the three that I think would most reflect where I believe the party needs to head, what I believe its priorities need to be. I would trade um, Tucker for Ron DeSantis. I okay. Think. Okay. But, but see, Trump, to me, Trump's the politician. Yep. Uh, Teal's the money guy. I mean, he's the intellect. He's the guy behind. The, he's kind of the um, the mastermind. <laughs> and Tucker would be your spokesman. And Tucker would be my spokesman. He can articulate. Your question. I mean, yep. you know, and I think Tucker's over the target. And the way you know in, in America, the way you know you're over you know the target, of course he is. The way, the way he's getting uh, blasted. Attack. I mean, when you get attacked as much as Tucker does, you know you're over the target. I mean, that's how the left reacts and responds. None of this is knee-jerk. I mean, all this is very intentional. They know that Tucker is over the target. Therefore, the strategy, because they don't have any decency, they don't have any principle, they'll do whatever it takes to destroy Tucker Carlson. They don't care if he's telling the truth. They, they, they could care less. He's over the target. And, and they're not going to stand for that. So they're, they're going to try to do everything within their power to destroy Tucker Carlson. But I think with those three, you get a lot of different ingredients there. I mean, I don't, I don't dispute DeSantis. I mean, of course I think DeSantis. I think he's done a good job of figuring out how to use his position and the, the power his position holds to actually do some things. He's done a better job than Trump. I mean, when you look at enacting America first in a... Political way, DeSantis has done better, but I think those three people would be my choice to be on the corporate board if the Republican Party were indeed a corporation. Take a break. Back in a minute. Yeah, I do. I mean, I think, you know, what's the old saying? Go woke, go broke. <laughs> uh, there's one thing that corporations like more than um, political favor or political love, political uh, affection, and that is money. And I think anytime you affect their bottom line, I did see this where Netflix has basically sent out a memo. I've got it in my stack of stuff here. Uh, I could get to it in a second. But Netflix basically engaged their employees where they were and said, look, man, we're a very diverse company. Got a lot of employees who have a lot of different opinions. Um, but we're not going to restructure our business model based on how woke or not our employees may be. So, yeah, I do think this is um, I think there was a big lesson in Disney. I mean, Netflix is a big boy, but Disney's a bigger boy. Disney's a big, big force in the, in the American economy. And when DeSantis did what he did um, and, and and basically followed through with it, not just made a threat to Disney, but said, you want to play in my sandbox? I mean, I'm not going to sit there and take punches. Guys, this is the Trump phenomenon in action. I mean, Donald Trump has, has convinced one political party that you don't have to worry about being popular. You know, Mitt Romney wanted to be admired. Uh, John McCain wanted to uh, to be invited to these parties and and and, and the Bush acolytes. I mean, they, they were more interested in how they fit in than defending liberties and freedoms and a political agenda that half the people in America aspire for. And that's why we've got to get away from that. It's like Jim said a second ago. You know, what does conservative mean today? It doesn't mean what it did years and years and years ago. And I think, once again, um, do we have to abandon the principles of which we've operated on uh, for a half century, yes, we do. I mean, th this is a blood sport, and this is a contact sport. And, and as much as Scott Kaufman and I wish that all over America 
people were cordially and civilly disagreeing with one another. One political party wants to transform this country, and they'll do anything within their power to get their way. Except that is truth, and conservatism is not the answer. It's going to be a, and a very, uh, a very aggressive ingredient in this political party. And if that means taking on Disney, or that means taking on Netflix, or that means kind of um, abandoning some of the conservative values, and by that I mean distorting the marketplace. Um, are we going to distort the marketplace when the Republicans get control of the House and Senate? And I'm predicting they will. Are they willing to distort the marketplace in favor of the American working class? You know, that, that's kind of the fundamental question. What, what are we willing? Our principles have been based on what? Limited government, right? Lower taxes, limited government. That's kind of been the storyline of conservatism all of my life. Are we willing to abandon those? And, and take government and use it to promote an agenda that, that, that we believe is America first. I mean, it, that, that's kind of the action item. I mean, it, and it's going to be a struggle because Romneys of the world are going to be, you know, they're still married to this Ayn Rand and, and Atlas Shrugged. And look, guys, philosophically, I have not moved. I mean, I am still exactly where I was the day I began to understand government. I believe that a smaller government is a better government. I believe that less regulations and lower taxes leads to a more prosperous uh, American economy that we all benefit proportionally as a part of. But I also believe that you've got to accept things where they are. And right now, we're not having a, a traditional conservative liberal conversation. We're having a, a, a conversation about one political party that wants to just, you know, just completely and totally transform slash destroy the, the America of days gone by. What are we willing to do? to be the political opposition. Uh, uh, career politicians normally pretty good at his job. That's how he stays a career. <laughs> I mean, if you don't, you're not able to make a career something if you're not very good at your job. Um, if you're a 20-year career umpire, guess what? You were good enough that somebody didn't fire you. Well, we just need to get back to a meritocracy. Uh, we, people need to be rewarded based on merit. What, how good are you at what you do? I mean, the, the, the Bureaucratic Accountability Act is something I've always been uh, supportive of and appreciative of um, how do we maintain accountability in the public sector? Um, the voter, I mean, to, to, in all honesty, the people that are most held accountable are, is Congress, right? I mean, the members of the House run every two years. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they don't steal the election. Uh, we don't think they do. Um, you know, Spark Toro, I don't know if you saw this yesterday or not. You actually sent me a text about it. I read yep. some other things about it. there's this company called Spark Toro. Um, they've done an audit. And it's really where Elon Musk got his notion from that maybe, just maybe, Twitter's being dishonest about 5% of their accounts being bots or spam or fake accounts. So Spot Toro um, applied some of the same ah, software. Uh, it's, it's, it's actually auditing software that allows them to find out how many are legit and real and how many are fake, spam, bot. Uh, they came up with about 49.6% of Biden's followers are fake. That's just kind of ironic, isn't mm -hmm. it? I mean, what do we believe about a lot of Biden voters? Yeah, the 81 million. Yeah, I mean, 81 million voters. So if he's got, I think he's got 25 million, uh, you know, Twitter followers, Spark Toro says, and once again, their auditing software says that about half those are fake. It's just kind of ironic that Biden has a lot of fake Twitter followers uh, does that does that lead us to believe yeah, that he probably how does that got? Happen? Why does that happen? I, I don't have any idea. I, I, I could begin to 
to fathom. I, mean, I don't understand Spark Toro and what they're doing. Either. I don't understand um, so some of the auditing software that they've applied. But but Musk is the one that leaned on this company. Here's what I think happened. I read a story yesterday, actually in the San Francisco Tribune, um, that Musk found out about this company and they'd done some work on uh, how many Twitter accounts out there are fake. So Musk reaches out to SparkToro and says, would you share some of that information? And I think they shared some of that um, auditing software with some people in the Musk camp, and it appeared to be um, real, it, it legitimate. I mean, it, it did prove the point. And it's really why Musk went back to Twitter and said, hey, you know, we've got information that leads us to believe that as much as 20% of, um, of all the accounts you guys have, not just um, legitimized by saying they're real, but you file with the SEC. You know, and your, your valuations are based on, I mean, when you go to an advertiser and say, uh, hey, we, we've got a hundred million or we got a billion or we got two billion, uh, you know, users, subscribers. No, you don't. Because one of every five, that'd be like one of every five friends you have being a robot. I mean, it just, right. that's kind of weird. I mean, that, that would be real weird if, um, if one of every five followers, well, in Biden's case, they believe it's one of every two followers. I'll tell you, going back to the to the um to the whiner, the way you have a political career is to do any and everything it takes to stay in power. Some people are good at it, but they just don't love it as much. That they're just not that politically ambitious. They have a life outside of that. Their worth and value and importance and significance is not tied up in you know how long I'm in the Senate. Did I get a bus? Did I get a picture? Did I get a portrait? Did a building get named after me? Did I, um, I think about Trey Gowdy. You know, he got out. And, well, Trey uh, hated Washington. Right. I mean, I, I know but that. But I thought I mean, he was a great congressman. Well, he's a, a very good congressman. And the reason he was probably good at it was he didn't love it. I mean, in all honesty, hey, the ones you better be real suspicious of are the ones that love it. If somebody tells you they love going to Washington, vote their ass out <laughs> as quick as you can. <laughs> Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Cocky Mike. Hello, Mike. Hello, guys. Um, let's talk about this Twitter and the bot accounts and all this stuff. Um, back when I was on Twitter, before all five of my accounts got banned, um, I, there was a time when I was sitting in my laptop at home in my office, and I had turned on notifications for Donald Trump. Because I was actually an experiment. So when he tweets it, the ping, it pops up. And then the amount of time that it took me to move my mouse, click on that link, and that tweet comes up, he had something like 200 responses. Okay? Now, what's that? Three seconds? Two and a half seconds? Those are bot accounts that are trained on there. And if you take and look and click on that account, you see that they're following 27 people, and they have no followers, and all of them are identical. Well, what, is, what Musk is doing is I'm not sure that he really wants Twitter or wants to bring them back. He is, he is exposing to the world <clears throat> that Twitter is fake, and it, it, it's agenda-driven, and it, it has all this evil amount to it by – Twitter admitting, yes, we know we have 5% of bots. And, you know, oh, we're getting rid of 20,000 a day. But you know what? You need to create a system where you don't have 20,000 new bot accounts every day. And when you look at Joe Biden's bot accounts, you also got to look at uh, Donald Trump's bot accounts, okay? 
because there were um, that same company also did an analysis of Trump, and I'm I'm sorry I don't remember what it was, but they they projected he had about half of his followers were bot accounts. Now, is it for the same reason those bot accounts are pumping up Biden and you know trashing Donald Trump? So they're being followed by both. Everybody's being followed by bot accounts. It's just a matter of what's the reasoning behind that bot and is following that person. So, Mike, would it be the same thing? I mean, give me the. I mean, I'm talking about business now. You're a business guy. I'm a business right. guy. So, would it be the same as our salespeople going out every day um, and and misrepresenting our listener listenership by tenfold? I mean, is that kind yeah, of what? Absolutely. I mean, that, that that's the monetary that's, component here. That's right. And see that. That's where you and I can complain about Twitter, and there's a whole bunch of bot accounts, but we don't carry any voice whatsoever because they just say, well, I get over it. But Elon Musk can verbally and vocally and very loudly say, look, you're telling me this company is worth X number of dollars because, you know, it's an advertising company. Sure. Sure, everybody gets to talk, but it's an advertising company. And I'm buying an advertising company like I would be buying a radio station, and there were only five people listening to. It. You know what I mean? Yeah, Mike. And, how much? Uh, I, he's, I, I, he's exposing that. I, I'd be. How much would you be willing to pay if Twitter was legitimate? No bots, no spams, no fake accounts, no censorship. My cocky Mike gets to say whatever he wants to say and listen and keep up with what everybody else gets to say what they want to say. How much would you pay for that a month? to be allowed to be a part of that social media family? Uh, you know what? I don't know. I, I don't know. But you see yeah. where I'm headed. I mean, you know, you got to yeah, monetize I would pay, it. Though. I would pay. I would. I absolutely would pay. But it would be, I mean, I don't know. It could be $9.95 a month, yeah. $19.95 a month. I know what I pay for all these other subscriptions. When I have a credit card get compromised and they call me and say, hey, we shut your card down. We got to send you a new one because... Somebody tried to charge one cent, you know, in China. Um, I have to go through, it's an all-day process to go through all those <laughs> subscriptions I have for all this and the Daily Wire and the this guy and the that guy. So, But I would pay for it. But most people wouldn't because most people are just, well, all half the liberals are kids. And they don't work and they're just mouths. So. Yeah. Interesting. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. And that, that's kind of an interesting take on it. It would be like, I mean, I thought of this yesterday. It would be like us sending our sales staff out to see cocky Mike, who's a business guy, saying, hey, you need to advertise on this morning radio show we have. They have, you know, um, a million listeners. Now, we know the market size. We don't have a million listeners. I mean, we do well, and we know we do well. But it would be an embellishment uh, to, to basically add value um, illegitimately. See, see, there's already some com- comparisons now that i'm hearing uh not from the cnbc's of the world because they've helped prop up twitter you know that they've declared it this valuable or that valuable and um but i've already seen some comparisons in the uh the dark corners of the web uh to enron you know a complete and total misrepresentation oh, wow. to the point of being a fabrication you know the, the books are just completely and totally cooked there is no it's not a um well we we, we did fudge a little bit here we did fudge a little bit there, but but just an attempt to fraud, uh, attempt an attempt to fraud or defraud the investor, and um, and there's a price to pay, and and I would imagine at some point in time, Rev, whether Musk buys or not, if they can't validate their 
they're subscribers. I mean, it's not subscribers. What is it? Uh, users. Followers. Users. There you go. If they can't validate their users and it's including in an SEC filing that Dave Baker decides it's a good investment because Twitter grew 10%. You know, they grew 12%. They've got, you know, a billion users. They got 2 billion users. Uh, President Biden has, you know, uh, President Obama has 170 million followers. How many followers does, does he does really he? have? Or there you go. <laughs> or does he? Um, and that's what sparked Toro. And it's, it's kind of interesting that there's a company out there that would create auditing software to find out how many uh, subscribers or how many users Twitter has or not. We'll take a break. We'll be back in a second. 